me and my sister both had our surnames changed to our stepdad's name. On the change of name certificate, which had been stamped at the court, was a year before we met him. And it kind of felt like we'd been sold. Skinny white man with long, dank, greasy hair, glasses that were like jam jars. He started to take on and use and abuse the spiritual beliefs. He used it to manipulate people. Everybody was fooled. So he'd built up all of this momentum and reputation as, I'm gonna say it, man of God. As a 12 year old girl, like what, what do you say to that? Woke me up, he's like, shh, go out into the hall. Um, he was really lonely, missing my mum, um, just needed someone to hold on to. Could I get into the bed and, you mean, just whilst my mum's away? I was scared. I was scared. Your whole body and mind knows that you're in danger. But the way that he was talking to me made it sound like the most normal, natural thing in the world. When I did finally come out and tell somebody, it ruined my life. So I think I tried to say how uncomfortable I felt around my stepdad and that he's been asking me to get into his bed while you're away. She just looked at me and said, are you sure that's what happened? Maybe two or three days later, I got summoned to the living room. They're both there, mom and stepdad. How dare I say these things about her husband? I'm trying to ruin their marriage. He sat there and didn't say a thing. And I just saw a little smirk. My mom then told me that they'd already spoken to, to the leaders at church. And the only place that I could have gone to to get any help, they'd gone there before me to make sure that everybody already knew that I was a liar. There was no defence or protection for me at all. And that is probably one of the most scarring things. It's like, what do you do when somebody won't believe you when you're telling the truth? All right, so today we have got a very serious story and there's going to be some harrowing content. So just a warning, if stories of this nature are not something that is going to settle well in your brain, you might want to go and watch something more lighter content. But, you know, I'm really honoured to have Donna Ward with me today who has written this book. It's part of a trilogy and the first instalment is called forged by fire i'm going to read some of the back of it so you can just get the gist of what we're going to be talking about today and it says crucible of flame throws us headlong into the life of donna raised in a reclusive christian sect and for legal reasons we're not going to specify what uh, branch of um 
the Christians sects that is we're just going to keep it general um abused i've left the word out there because it's first five minutes on youtube addicted to drugs and then trapped in domestic abuse donna reflects on these events with her drug counselor alicia it is clear that her supernatural abilities give her a unique perspective giving readers a rare insight into the psyche of a survivor empowered by her faith readers will be holding their breath as they share donna's journey through the crucible of flame so the link for this book will be in the description box below the video as will the links to donna's socials and she also has a youtube channel so please go down and, and support donna in what she's doing and we're, we're going to go on this journey with her now but because of the police requirement on this channel i first have to ask her a legal question which is, for the purpose of telling this story today, Donna, do you waive your anonymity? I do, yes. Okay, thank you. Right, so it's a long-form interview where we go over your life story. And, that's, and... that's great, actually. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I've watched your other stuff, and you're a really good speaker. They're about an hour long, yeah. but we're going to try and get a bit more detail so we, so we can go longer. But just to start out then, could you describe like where you were brought up yeah, so um, I've got two versions of that, actually. <laughs> so one of the things that I have um, learned about my own trauma and about trauma in general um, is the human mind's capacity to change a story to something more palatable. So up until I was maybe th 35... Uh, the story I used to tell everybody was that I had an idyllic childhood growing up in the countryside. It was a bit like little house on the prairie. We'd get snow we'd get snow storms and get like snowed in and power cuts and this kind of like wonderful tale of sunshine and countryside. <laughs> yeah. And I told it for years and had no idea that I had crafted this. Um, as a way, as a defense mechanism, really. Um, the truth is, is that part of that is a little tiny bit of truth. So, yeah, we did kind of grow up in the countryside. Um, and there was, you mean, horses, cows, and you mean sunshine occasionally. Um, but on the flip side of that, um, my parents chose to move us from place to place to place to place. How had your parents met? The story I heard, <laughs> and I have to couch it because I, I obviously wasn't there. The story I heard was that um, my mum was invited to a barn dance by some work colleague or other, and this is where she'd met my soon to be stepdad um they're a very weird very weird couple so she is older he was much younger um different ethnic backgrounds and you just you just wouldn't put, you wouldn't really put them together <laughs> so okay so we've, we've jumped ahead a bit here are you saying then that your mum was a single mum who then met Person. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I forgot. I forgot the birth father. Didn't that's I? what I was going to. That's yeah. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say it's not surprising that I forgot 
the birth father, he is very forgettable. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> he wasn't around much or um he was around my memories of my birth father are of him being absent, um, yelling at my baby sister at the time when I'm talking like she was in a high in a high chair, like over random things, and he favorited me over her. And those are my memories, which have, you mean, started the how I formed my opinion of him. Because even at that tender age, I think he left when I was about five. And do you know how your mum met your birth father? No idea. Okay. Um, it's never been spoken about. Um, because I don't have any relationship with my birth father. Um, I mean, he's had several families since, and he just does that have a family for a few years, have some more kids, then don't, and runs off and does it again. So that's why he broke up with your mum? Yeah, he, he, um, he'd he been having an affair with her best friend and ran off, oh with, the, ran off with the best friend. <laughs> so that must have been pretty traumatic for you then at age five, was it? Yeah. Well, we didn't know initially what had happened. So I, even after he'd left, I think it was two weeks before we noticed that, like, where's daddy? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it kind of came out after that. Um, but yeah, so he's, he's never been around. I've seen him probably since that, since been about five, I may have seen him four times. How did your life change after he was gone just in the immediate months? Um, once you realized that once it sunk in? The change, my mother, was, uh, she was broken. That's all I can say. I remember getting up in the morning and finding her sprawled out on the floor, sobbing and crying. I remember there being no food in the cupboards, um, having to have family members move in with us to help care for me and my sister. Um, and she was a young woman still at this point, wasn't she? I, I'm assuming so. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, she would have been. Um, so, yeah, I, I just remember a very broken lady um the weird thing is, is that I don't, I don't have many memories of her before that time um yeah it's it's yeah it's a strange thing but yeah so I just I just remember her being broken sad crying in need um and it's not to say she didn't stay that way um but I think as a young child and a young girl seeing you mean your primary carer in that state uh yeah i think it kind of it does impact you it's got to be devastating so in terms of the chronology of the story then you're, you're age five mm. um approximately what year was this and where were you based in the country at that point right what year good god uh so that would have been 82 83 okay um, we're in, in the Midlands. In, in the Midlands. Yeah, um, in Staffordshire. Right. And are you starting out in uh, like a kindergarten school or anything or infant school, is it, in, at that age? Uh, prime, yeah, primary school. I think, we, I think I'd been to a couple of different primary schools. I don't even remember why, but I'm assuming it's like we moved again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and had... So, you know, we're talking about the, the sect here, the yeah. inclusive uh, so sect. That, had, had that 
had, had there the been a religious influence on you in the, those first so, five so years of yes, your life? So, yeah, so, yeah, there's the definitely been a religious influence. So, um, my, like, my mum always took us to church. Um, a lot of our family were at church. Um, my grandfather is a, a bishop. <laughs> so, they kind of grew up as in the pastor's kids. Um, so, yeah, church was a, was a, a heavy, strong, but essentially joyful part of our lives. Um, and it wasn't, to me anyway, at that time, it didn't seem anything dark or bad or manipulative. It was like a fun place with lots of music and singing and dancing and old ladies in hats. <laughs> like, it, it was great. I have like wonderful memories running around with my cousins and getting stale biscuits out in Nanny's handbag and all that. So it was, it was lovely. It was absolutely lovely. <laughs> but looking back in the 1980s then, were, uh -huh. you, were you deprived of things that other kids were doing? Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. So I would say probably from the eight, between the ages of, let's say, eight and 15, um, our, our lives were locked down just locked down and that was nothing to do with my birth dad because he was long gone by then and it wasn't something that my mother had instilled prior to my stepdad arriving let's talk about your stepdad arriving then because that's when it gets starts to get grim yeah i mean <laughs> i actually still have such a vivid memory of meeting him for the first time um skinny white man with long, dank, greasy hair, glasses that were like jam jars, with a cowboy shirt with tassels, <laughs> cowboy, yeah, mm. cowboy boots, just like the skinniest jeans I've ever seen on a human. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there was a motorbike as well. And I'm just, when I couple that image next to, you mean uh, a West Indian lady, who, you mean, typically West Indian round, kind of, you mean, plumpy cheeked and all, <laughs> and all the rest of it, curly hair. It just, it just doesn't, like, it just didn't go together <laughs> at all. And he clearly had had no experience of children at all, which me and my sister found hilarious. Um, so things like um, him getting used to things like putting the kids to bed and, and what have you, he screamed all the time. And it wasn't even like we felt brightened at the time. It was just, this is why he's, kicked your bed. And we're just like, and it was just so weird because it was clear, you know, just when someone's got no, trying to do something that they clearly haven't done before. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we always found that quite amusing. But it was just, it, it was, he was so out of place. You said earlier on that they met and he was considerably older than your mum at that point. Oh, no, the other way around. So he was considerably younger. So He was considerably younger. So, yeah, he's 10 years younger than my mother. 10 years younger. So was she in her 30s by now then? She was in her early 30s. Early so 30s. He was in his early 20s. Okay. And so, you mean, when you're talking us, you mean a guy who's 21, mm -hmm. 22, being with an older woman is no thing, really. No. But, but then you're kind of step, trying to step into a stepdad role with two kids, 
when everyone's from different cultures and backgrounds. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be nearly unheard of today. Like, a, well, I, don't, I don't know. Are there many young 20-year-olds who, like, re- want that life? I, I don't know. But even to me at that young age, I'm just like, this, what? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and don't get me wrong, I've made poor, poor men choices, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I get that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was just, it, it didn't make sense. So did the abuse start right away from him? No, no, it didn't. And I think this, for me, is one of the most insidious parts of the whole tale, is that because it didn't start right away, in fact, it didn't start for several years, um, there is no way that any of us could have predicted that. And he had worked purposely so hard to ingratiate himself with everyone that we knew, family, friends, built up this image of who he was, what he did, what he stood for, that for the longest time, even I believed. What did he say he stood for? Um, he um, converted to Christianity because he wasn't um, he wasn't a Christian or had any kind of faith before meeting my mum. So he, he quickly converted. Um, I mean, he was like the only white guy at our church. We went to like a, like a proper black, black church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was the only white guy there. Um, but kind of loved the attention also. And it very quickly um, made his way into leadership positions and, you mean, being the, I mean, a lot of Christians believe the kind of the man is the head of the household. So we had that whole thing. Um, Then the... He started to take on and use and abuse the spiritual beliefs, um, which, of course, nobody really saw at the time. So things like people believing in, in um, you mean, the power of the Holy Spirit to impart knowledge, to heal, all of those sorts of things, which are beliefs that I do hold. Um, but he... He he used it to manipulate people and to profess that, you mean, he's a prophet and God told him this and God told him that. And, you mean, causing division among other people to then present himself as the hero. And I only know that now looking back. But at the time, um, you mean, it's like, oh, yes, this powerful man of God and he's seen this and he's done that. And everybody was fooled into drinking the Kool-Aid. Everybody. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Was he he charismatic then? I mean, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so, but I, even probably as young as eight or nine, I remember him telling me, I mean, talking about how much women fancied him, how much women were attracted to him and were always throwing themselves on him. Now, bearing in mind he's married to my mum. Um, he, he's, telling you, he's telling you that separately when your mum's not around. Yeah. That's suspect, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and talking about things like talking about my body or other young girls' bodies. I, I remember being about 10 and I, I don't even remember where we'd been, so we're in the, in the car 
and our church had had some visitors from another country family mum dad couple of kids one of the girls was similar age to me so we'd kind of been hanging out and he turned around and he said you see that stain on the back of her skirt he said that's sperm i know she's just oh had my sex God. and how old were you when he said that? i was like 10 um so and, and so that we had that alongside the kind of super spiritual you mean man hears from god prophet type thing I know what I'm saying because God's telling me and everybody eating that up. But then at the same time, we've got um, exposing me to like sexual content, sexual thoughts, paying too much, so much attention paid to my body, which had a real impact on me. Um, when you say sexual content, what do you mean by that? Just things like, why are you telling a 10-year-old that you think some girl's had sex and she's got semen on the back of her skirt? Like, okay. <laughs> like what? And I, thought, oh, I thought you meant like you was exposing you to pornography or something. No, no. I mean, <laughs> although I did have a weird thing. and th But this was my mum. And I, honestly, it wasn't until I, mean, I was well into adulthood and people were like, your mum did what? <laughs> So when I was nine, obviously everyone gets the birds and the bees talk from, usually from a family member, but so my mum would sat me down, I think we talked about periods, there was a book, I'm sure there was a book. Anyway, she then made me go and sit down and watch a, I think it was Panorama back in the day, I'd, it was a Panorama style show. It was all about um, sex, but it actually showed you like two adults having intercourse. I was nine. I didn't know that that wasn't normal. So as I've kind of grown up and, you know, these conversations crop up and you're like, oh, how did your parents tell you? And then I say that and everyone looks at me like that, that that's not, not okay. That's not okay. Don't and was he present <laughs> when this was happening? So no, he wasn't. He wasn't there. But I don't, I still don't know how that came about. I mean, I wouldn't show that to my like nine or ten year old. Do you think he'd requested her do that? Entirely possible. Uh, um, knowing what I know about him and about how my mother um, relates to him, I would say probably yes. Um, she, as far as I can tell, she's got Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Because um, even now, she. You mean she, she's still with the same man? Oh, my goodness. All right, so I think you said you was age eight when he come into your life. Yeah. And in the first year, then, he rises up in the church. Yeah. His, his position, and he's he's claiming he's got, like, healing powers and stuff like that. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. And in that first year, then, from eight to nine... Was he dropping sleazy remarks around you? Or was that later? I think that was a bit. I think that was later. Um, so, I think, so you thought he was okay in the first year? Well, didn't we, you? we were just getting used to some strange man, some strange man in the house. Um, so, I think they were together a year before they got married. Um, and the first year they were married, I think, was fine. It was probably that second year that things started to get, I say get weird. I didn't know it was weird. So the second year of the marriage? Uh, yeah, um, yes. Which is the third year you've known him? Yeah. 
That's when things start to get so weird. That, well, that's when things start to change. So that's when, I mean, all of a sudden, um, I, we, we're not allowed to take the t TV in the house anymore. So the, the TV's gotten rid of because it's, a, like, I don't know, the window to sin or some such oh, nonsense. So we've got no TV. Um, we then have... Did you uh, have a favourite show back then as a kid that you, you wanted um, to watch and it was suddenly stopped? I think I was into, um, like, Knight Rider and <laughs> to Airhawk. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, <laughs> Steve Davis. Showing my age now. I still love all that crap, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Hulk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, Wonder Woman. So, Wonder yeah, that, Woman. so they, they were like, they were my shows. <laughs> they were my shows. So all of a sudden you've been deprived of your shows. Was he so dominant that you couldn't object to that? And oh, there was no objecting to anything. So, um, like corporal punishment was normal in our house. What what uh, methods of corporal punishment? Um, either hand smacking, or we got to pick between hand a slipper or a, a leather belt. And that's on your hand, all of that. No, like on your on your backside, on your rear end. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was that was normal, but I think it was normal of the time. There was corporal punishment, but I'm, I'm thinking with this guy, he's incorporating things of that era, but taking them way too far. It sounds like mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. I mean, I you know I got caned a few times in school. Yeah. Things like that, but I mean, how often was corporal punishment dished out to you? Oh, I would. Say I'm going to say at least monthly. Yeah, so. <laughs> and the, th the thing is, when I think about children being naughty and playing up and things like that, the things that we got punished for were completely random and outlandish. So he's looking for any excuse. Yeah. Um, I remember, and I, I know we used to get um, like put, put in our rooms sometimes. I, re I remember getting into trouble because we'd used a bit of extra washing powder for washing clothes. But get this, so even from being, you mean, eight years old, we had to wash our clothes in the bath, even though we had a washing machine. And so me and my little sister in the bath, it, like wash, it, hanging over the bath, washing clothes and what have you. Um, and then like actually got, you mean, a whooping for using more than was expected. And it just like, who does that? Like, who does that? When you say whooping specifically, what happened? I, I got a slipper to the arse. Right. <laughs> um, but even then, bef before that had even happened, we were kind of lined up and kind of yelled at and trying to work, who did it, who did it, who did it? And I'm like, it's not me. She's like, it's not me, it's not me. And we're obviously frightened because you, you've got this big old dude screaming at you. Um, uh, unfortunately, because of mine and my sister's very different personality traits at the time, she was really quiet. So she was a wallflower. If there was people over, you wouldn't see her at all. Um, didn't really talk much except to me at night time, which used to like, ugh. <laughs> um, and cause I was much more outgoing, um, just generally louder. Um, 
it was just assumed that if something wasn't the way that people wanted it, it was probably my fault. Mm. And that I didn't realize, but that stuck. Um, so I used to get in trouble for stuff I didn't do all the time to the point where it just became normal that, oh, you mean, it, it's, it's you. <laughs> Which then led to him um, punish you in, in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I don't know, I think we, we were confused, you know. Confu I know, I was confused. You know, when you keep getting into trouble, but you don't really know why you're in trouble. And you, in the beginning, you think you've done something and you're wondering what the hell it is. Yeah. You're feeling, you're blaming yourself, aren't you? Definitely. And so you kind of, um, it's a way of crushing your spirit. Um, and then we had that coupled with, so it it kind of taken some of the principles from Christianity. So we clung hard to that whole head of the household thing, which then meant my mother had to fall in line. As children, we had to fall in line, and he had the last and final say on everything. Um, you look stressed. <laughs> no, I'm just. It's this the nature of the of the story is it's serious, isn't it? it it's serious. It is, I know you're a smiley person, but it's a serious. It's it's massively serious, and yeah. I I think I forget. I've I've had time to sit on this mm. and think and reflect, and I, I'm always still surprised by other people's response. Well, I'm I'm just getting pissed off because I'm, I'm oh, yeah. not, not at you. <laughs> This guy, what's what's developing here, what you're describing is, I'm finding it upsetting, it, and I'm I'm, I'm 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 emotionally angry at this person, and it's getting it's building up because more things are happening. And yeah. I imagine the viewers who are watching this are probably feeling the exact same because you are describing yeah. it in such detail and so brilliantly that we're all on board with you. You get it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um. So, yeah, so the whole head of the household thing, and another very common one uh, principle that was imposed upon us was, um, there's a scripture somewhere in the Bible. Uh, I'm assuming it's there, because that's what they said. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, oh, uh, something along the lines that God has placed, like, each authority on the earth. And because God's placed them there, we should kind of respect and honour that authority. But in my house, that was translated as, you mean, I'm the authority of this house. This is where God's placed me. If you disobey me, you're actually disobeying God. So that's what we grew up with. Wow. So we weren't allowed to question anything. I didn't know you could... I didn't know you could question things till I was about 30. <laughs> Good grief. Um, because questions resulted in punishments. Um, any sort of if, uh, and obviously as a teenager, you, you do things on, you mean, purposely, that you're never going to pee off your, your parents. So obviously I got to, got to that age. But rather than you mean sit down, discuss, come to some sort of compromise. I got cold shouldered. So none of my parents would speak to me for weeks on end whilst living in the house. And you just, um, and so 
you then associate doing bad things means being cut off from your family. So he is like minor things. He's making them into big deals to punish you. But is your mum, does she just feel at this point that she's got to go along with whatever he says? Or is she in, in you know, standing up for you in some circumstances saying this is on, on injustice? I haven't I've seen my, my mum stand up for me once um, when I was getting racial abuse at school. That's the one and only time. So they had a very united front. What he said, she said, what she said, he said. Um, and there was no moving of those rules or boundaries. There was no flexibility in those. Uh, so you had no one to turn to? No. And because they kept moving us from place to place to place, we, we couldn't develop any external friendships or relationships. Um, even things like, so they vetted all of our reading. Um, unless they said, you mean a book was a, you mean was okay. So there was loads of, just we didn't have access to just normal information. We didn't have the radio. We didn't have, have a TV. Um, told us we couldn't have Christmas trees because it was pagan and evil spirits lived in Christmas trees. Even those plastic ones from B&Q. Do, do you know what I mean? And so... So when you go to school and all the kids have got these other things... How did it make you feel when they're talking about what they're watching on TV and they what they've got for Christmas? <laughs> it was awful. So, and this is something me um, and my sister, we, we kind of chuckle about it now, but it wasn't funny. The only clothes we had was school uniform and um, our lovely grandma used to send these matching outfits. God knows where she got them from. She, she got them from the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> so any child-like photographs of us when we're young, we look like Victorians because we're in these long dresses with like frills on the sleeves, frills down the front, around the collars, like a heavy velvet skirt. We, we look like something out of the 1800s. Have you got any pictures of that we could perhaps put oh, in the uh, trailer? I'll, I, do you know what? I actually don't. I might have one. I might have one picture. Um, we, we don't have any access to anything from our, from our childhood um, anymore. <laughs> um, but it. So, what did you dress for school like? So, what we had school uniform, which was fine. It was non-uniform days, or what do they call it? Mufti days, they used to call <laughs> it then. Mufti days were a nightmare. So we'd rock up in our, you mean Victorian little house on the prairie dresses with like velvet and frills <laughs> and everybody else is wearing shell suits <laughs> and trainers and raw-raw skirts with, with neon socks uh, do you know what I mean it, I'm talking about grain gel oh, <laughs> it was oh, like even just things like little gangs of girls singing the latest pop songs or we so you can't so you join no, it you had no music either the only music we had was like Christian music how many years did you go without music Those probably from, yeah, I would say nine to 15. Oh, my God, music's so important to a young person yeah. as well. I was allowed, so I was given some of my stepdad's. So we had, like, this old deck. Um, it was like a record player, radio, but they'd ragged all the buttons off the radio, so I couldn't listen to the radio, and it had, like, a little tape, tape deck in it. And so he gave me some tapes that I could listen to, one of them was um, the Human League, a Human League album. <laughs> and I think the other one was Aha, 
Take on me. And I think there might have been a Chris Rea one. That that was. I mean, I have. The, I have the musical tastes of like a middle-aged white guy. Oh my <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I still like that stuff, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But that, that was it. That, that was, you mean, the 80s and you mean most of the 90s. That's what I had access to. Other than that, it was all Christian artists of varying sorts. Um, I mean, there'll be some people out there watching, like if I say Carmen, you're going to know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) So I think at the time, um, Carmen was a very theatrical, charismatic um, kind of Christian music artist. Um, I think probably he'd borrowed from um, like pop stars who had started to use video. Um, So he had... um, like uh, Michael Jackson and Prince have done like their music <laughs> video movie type thing. So we used to do those. So we were allowed to watch those. I <laughs> <laughs> mean, about his conversations with, you mean, a warlock and a wizard and, you mean, fighting their spiritual <laughs> battle with each other. So that's, that, that's what we had. Um, we had a weekly family um, prayer night where we... Well, we'd pray, read the Bible, um, do games, but the, all, all the games are Bible related. So it's like, who can find this Bible verse the fastest and you know, thumbing through? Mm-hmm. Um, we like had to learn all the books of the Bible, all 66 in order. <laughs> Don't ask me to say it. I mean, I probably could if I dug deep into the recesses. That, that's, that, that's, that's all. We, we weren't allowed to go to like, we didn't do like after school activities or go and hang out with friends. What was it like at meal times? Um, hmm. Interesting. Why? What made you ask that? I'm just wondering because I think I had a conversation with someone the other day and they were talking mm-hmm. about the etiquette of meals and whether they have to sit, say prayer before meals. and. Yeah. After the meal's finished, if they have to do anything ritualistic or conversation-wise after the meals, uh, I I would say. I mean, it's on, I do say grace before <laughs> before I eat. Still now, <laughs> um, it was strange because probably from the age of so at ten years old, um, my little baby brother was born basically upon his arrival I was expected to take on some of the more adult caring responsibilities so um I did a lot of kind of caring for both the younger siblings um I come home from school and have to cook cook the dinner for everybody um and that was kind of put on me and my and my, my other sister. I we did say prayers, definitely, but I don't think, and we always we always ate together when whenever anyone was there. And I don't think there was anything ritualistic, particularly around mealtimes, other than you mean say, saying prayers before before you ate. The only thing that was definitely an issue was the force feeding. 
Force feeding. <laughs> I don't have any other way to describe it. What would create a force feeding situation? Not eating everything on your plate. So everybody had to eat everything off their plate. I don't think I really had any issue with that. I, I like my food. Um, but my, my lovely sister, who I had mentioned, was very quiet, very reserved, very much a wallflower. Um, and would jump if you said boo. Um, she really struggled with mealtimes in our family. And, and, and this is even from being even quite small, kind of like six, seven, and seeing her sitting at the table by herself, and she'd been there for three hours because she wasn't allowed to leave until she'd finished that food. And if she didn't finish it, by the time it was bedtime, she'd get up in the morning and it would be there for breakfast. So it was, that was just really intense, um, unnecessary, just, uh, I, I don't understand the purpose in that other than to create compliance. Everything, in fact, everything I've told you so far, when I reflect on it, was about creating compliance. What if she couldn't eat it for breakfast? There was definitely a, a punishment. So it would, it would, if she, if she wasn't eating it, there would either be a, you mean a beating of some description, um, or have to stay in her room by herself. Um, and I think even now, she, she doesn't struggle with food now, but she did for the longest time because of the way that food had been used to abuse her. Um, yeah, like... If, you, if, you, if you're grounded to your room then and you've got no music, no books, no TV, what have you got in your room at that age? <laughs> um, Toys or anything? No. I mean, I don't think we had toys... I actually don't remember there being many toys in the house ever. We used to get stuff for like um, our family occasionally. I had a Cindy doll. I definitely had a Cindy doll at some point. But no, we, we didn't have lots of toys. We, we, we just didn't. Um, I think as we got a bit older, I think we were allowed to go out and play at the park. There was a couple of, do couple of doors down the, down the street. Um, with your own thoughts, isn't it? If you go to the park then mm -hmm. and you've got, you know, these particular clothes on and stuff and there's other normal kids in the regular clothes, mm -hmm. those kids, do you like stand out and get picked on or how does that work? <laughs> okay, so you see I have purple hair. <laughs> right. <laughs> Love the purple hair. <laughs> mm -hmm. I can honestly say that I've stuck out my entire life. So because of the area that we lived, there just weren't any other black or brown people. Um, primary school, it was just me until my sister joined, at whichever of the primary schools. High school was the same, I think. High school, there was me, my sister, who was came two years later. Um, I think at that time, another brother and sister, black brother and sister joined, and I think there was two Chinese kids. And like out of a thousand kids, everyone else was white. So it didn't matter what we did. We would we would stick out. I mean, coming dressed as Victorians on non on on uniform day, 
didn't make any difference. We were we already stuck out and it was the same where we lived by the... So yeah, I've literally stuck out my entire life and I, I kind of roll with it now. Um, but it was very different experience. Again, just because our personality traits are so different. Um, she hated school. Did she get bullied more than, yeah. did you get bullied at all? I got bullied, but I'm, I'm a fighter. Mm. <laughs> so, and probably even now, I mean, my my family will definitely say that when it comes to like fight or flight, don't really have a flight. I just have a fight. And I think it's kind of like a, tra a trauma response. So, and her trauma response was to retreat into herself. And mine was kind of uh, a very angry, willing to fight self. Um, so we're opposite ends of the same spectrum. So yeah, she hated school. She got bullied frequently, which meant I was fighting frequently on her behalf. But it also made sure that we have the strongest bond because all we actually had was each other. The, the circumstances and the situation that had been manufactured around us forced us together. So we, we were each other's everything. Um, yeah, I was, I'm sure for a, a, probably at least five or six years, I might have been the only person she talked to. Um, she, she could talk. <laughs> she likes to save it up all day and then mm. wait till bedtime. Nobody else is there. And then just... Um, she must be, internally though, she must be really traumatised from that. Yeah. Well, children oh. don't, don't behave like that normally, do they? Mm. No. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Harry's. Having such a scratchy face, I'm always delighted to get a new Harry's set. There's a foaming gel, hydrating night lotion, and the razor with the weighted handle really gets the job done. The trimmer blade makes it so easy to get into those tricky places to reach. The shave gel offers effective lubrication and just comes off like butter. It's such a smooth shave. It shaves fast, efficiently, no discomfort, and it is so smooth at by the end. The hydrating night lotion is light and non-greasy. Harry's is doing a zero pounds trial. Start shaving with the products, just pay for delivery. Save every time, save on all your shaving products without sacrificing quality. You're in control. You can modify or cancel your plan from the account page. Make sure to support our podcast and start your own skincare journey by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you cover is £3.95 for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, and have your trial set delivered to your door. That's harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. There's nothing normal about this story. No. So we're talking now in terms of stepdad came in at age eight. Mm -hmm. You've described the... Your parents have now had a son. This is about three or four years in to when he's been coming to your life. Mm -hmm. It was the third year he came into your life that he started to behave more inappropriately. Definitely. So how did that increase then after they, they had the son? Um, I think the arrival of my brother, I think my mum was quite sick actually after having my brother. So she, 
for like six months, she was essentially bedridden, which was how me and my sister ended up with so many other responsibilities. So we'd been taken to nursery, bathroom, cooking dinners, all, all those sorts of things. Was that a physical thing or postnatal depression? I, I, I don't know, actually. I think she'd had some sort of surgery after, after the birth. But I, I don't know. All I remember is that she was in her room and we didn't see her. It's like, you know, like a, like a Miss Havisham type of affair where we know there's somebody in that room, but nobody, <laughs> nobody goes in. <laughs> um, so you're only dealing with him now? We're only dealing with him For six now. months? Yeah. What was that like? Um, I think he tried to make it as fun as possible, to be honest with you. Um, and I think that was the start of... I didn't... I didn't understand it as inappropriate at that time. Um, but it was like him coming to me for help and how it would be so amazing and how like I'm being really supportive. And you know, when you're a kind of you're a, a child or a young adult, or whatever, like that feels great, doesn't it? Because you're about what, 12 in yeah, the story here? Yeah. So that, that feels great that, oh, like they trust me and like they appreciate me and, and all of this sort, sort of stuff. So it kind it, um I would say from that point is what started to develop this newer type, different relationship. And so he seemed really appreciative and because of that would want to treat you and like, oh, well, I'll go and buy you popcorn or well, I'll take you out for breakfast. And so that's when all of these things started. And to the untrained eye, it, it looks fine. It looks absolutely fine. And of course, being raised in this kind of reclusive environment anyway, I had, yeah, I had no idea about people. I honestly believe people didn't lie. Because if he lied, God's going to open up the clouds and strike you with a bolt of lightning. That's what I actually believed. And so I didn't think people lied because if they're dead, they'd be dead. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like... he's, a, he's an absolute authority in your eyes. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And he's suddenly been really nice to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, going back a little earlier than that. So he, he used to, we used to like prank each other in the house and things like that. And... It's not until I've kind of re reflected on it a bit. So when my birth dad left, I actually, I mean, sorry to tell this to the world, but my response was bedwetting, which went on for years, actually. And I think eventually at about eight, um, some sort of health worker or social worker or something or other um, provided my mum with, this archaic <laughs> it was like um chicken wire like mesh sheet but with much small much smaller holes that had to go under my sheet and if it got wet a big alarm went off alarms went off to, uh, to wake me up so that I could you know, go to the toilet or change the sheets I don't know what kind of torture implement that was. <laughs> right? I've never heard anything like that before in my life. But it was. See, when I say the people who are like that, we've like, what is that? <laughs> I don't know where it came from. Don't know how it arrived. So I had that for a couple of years, which I don't know if you've ever been woken up by something that sounds like like a fire alarm or an air raid siren. 
it was Get your adrenaline going uh, it was horrific so it doesn't make for restful sleep at all um once i'd finally kind of gotten over the bedwetting um my stepdad thought it would be really funny and he'd do this regularly to hide an alarm clock in my room to go off at like two three o'clock in the morning so i'd wake up to and then this bearing in mind this has been going on for years now um wake up being woken up by alarms can't find it anywhere so you're freaking out and you're searching your route and then i have to go to my parents and i'm crying because i don't know this is not and he's, he's like pretending to be asleep laughing and so this went on for years but when i was 12 and I didn't realise at the time, but it made sense because that's when he started coming into my room at night and waking me up. <laughs> All right, let's go, let's stop a minute. The, the, the first time he did that, what was his reason he had for going into your room? Uh, he got, woke me up, got me out of bed. So I actually shared a room with my sister at the time. Bunk beds. Woke me up. He's like, shh, go out into the hall. Um, our mum was always, so she she worked away a lot. And so his reasoning was that um, he was really lonely, missing my mum, just needed someone to hold on to. Could I get into the bed and, you mean, just whilst my mum's away? And I don't know, like, as a 12-year-old girl, like, what what do you say to that? Your brain's just got to be like... What do you say to that? Yeah. And I'm sure... I know I responded something like, why? I don't actually remember what I re- I know I did respond. It's just like what your whole body and mind knows that you're in danger. Even though it doesn't look like obvious danger, but you know this isn't okay. But the way that he was talking to me, made it sound like the most normal, natural thing in the world. And having spent years training me to wake up in the middle of the night, mm. <laughs> yeah, that you know when it doing it, the, the penny drops and you're like, damn, that's a long game. That is a long game, coupled with all of the different ways of forcing compliance, um, not allowing us to like have an opinion or a view or question things, inserting himself as the authority in the... Do- it, it, yeah, it, it was... I was just shocked. I, I think I was so shocked because I had no way of understanding what was happening. I had no way of understanding why it was happening. I had no one to talk to about it. Um they've spent by this point they've spent years moving us from house to place to town to we don't have any like friendships our family extended family live miles and miles like we don't even have, don't even have phones at this point you know what i mean to, to like send a text or ring a family member um and i just remember feeling trapped um and so yeah that that's I say that's how it started. That's the first time that he made me get into bed with him. Prior to that, there'd been multiple instances of one of the houses that we lived in. Um, 
we lived in three houses on the same street. Don't. <laughs> sure, there's a logical explanation for this. I can't find it. Um, so it was linked to my mum's job. And the house had three bedrooms, I think. So me and my sister shared a room. Little brother had his own room. Parents had their room. But then they built an extension downstairs at the back of the house to create another bedroom. So I got ended up getting my own bedroom. But what actually happened was, so we had like a, front of the house was a living room, then a big dining room, then a kitchen, then a bathroom on the end, then my room. All that had happened was like nobody could hear me scream now. Because oh <laughs> in the middle of the night, I was downstairs at the very far end of the house and everybody else was upstairs. And so that was part of his calculation was to put that, that room back there. Yeah. I like, it's horrifying because you do mean you, you when you watch like I don't know CSI and Special Victims Unit and all those things and you mean there's like the dodgy basement with a bed in it and all, that's what I think of it as now and so I had I mean I don't know how much detail to go into but things like that um, he would just come in my room and want to talk and inappropriate touching making me do inappropriate touching. Telling me that this is fun, that this is how I'm going to prepare you for life because this is what men are going to want. Blah 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 blah, and it's just it, it's it is horrifying. They, I don't know. People went to these lengths. I mean, did you? It's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, he's yeah. he's so calculating what he's yeah. what he's done here and just built it up over years. Yeah, and it's like we. In the middle of it, you have no way of knowing that that's what's happening, particularly when you factor in the isolation. I mean, I remember having a um, having to do a project for school um, about the Gulf War, and we had to get a lady from church to tape the news so that I could do my homework because we literally didn't have access to the news to know who the prime minister was or what's happening in the world we had access to nothing um yeah it's dude's a sick sick man i've got some questions but i don't want to i don't want it to um be too dark here but i think people need to know had you hit puberty at this point um yes yes i had because i definitely early bloomer you said he was touching you up and stuff. Had he full assaulted you at this point? Um, in the eyes of the law, yes. Yeah. Although I didn't acknowledge it as such at the time. Um, I think for me, the like you know when you know it's wrong and it's not okay, but when someone that has built up this trust with you for all these years tells you that it that it is okay and that it's fine and that actually I'm just teaching you and and I've got no other input to counteract that. Um, it felt uncomfortable and weird and wrong, but it didn't. Uh, I, I didn't immediately acknowledge it as assault. But the first time that you mean he made me get in his bed, that for me was like even I can't trick myself out of 
making them a, a, a reason for this. Did you feel changed as a person after that first assault? Yeah. When you um, went back to your room, uh, we, we, which room were you in at that point? Uh, I was sharing with my... With oh, he my took brother. you to his room, didn't he, in yeah. that one? So when you went back to your room then, what was going through your head? I... I was scared. I, I was scared. Uh, I don't even know what I was scared of. I would just remember being scared. Um, wishing my mum was there and you had absolutely no way to reach out to her did you no and i think the worst thing was begging her to not go away and she used to travel a lot for work and i'm kind of begging and pleading with her to not go and not being listened to but also feeling like you can't even tell her why um I'm pretty sure during that time that um, I wasn't the only infidelity. So I remember um, me and my sister coming home from school and finding like this pair of green stilettos. And we're like, Who, who's are these? And just in random instances. And um, he would constantly be bragging about, oh, who such and such had been coming on to him. And he's a narcissist. <sighs> Yeah, and that, but because he was like that, it became normal in our house that he would talk about these things and it wouldn't be a thing. Or that we could, the whole, you I mean, the whole family could have a, whole, a conversation about the size of my breasts now or my, or my hips. Or your breasts? Yeah. At, at age 12? Yeah, even before then. Oh my God. So constantly drawing attention to, oh, hasn't this bit grown now? And oh, look at that now. And all the boys. Was that in front all, of your mum? Yeah. Was she, what was her attitude to that? It, it was completely normalised. And even though I didn't like it, it was just brushed off as, oh, it's just like family banter, like just deal with it. And it probably wasn't until my first kind of long-term boyfriend who was like, dad's a bit weird with Jenny, like touchy-feely. How old were you then? I was 15. And so things like being smacked on the bum at home was, and that's in front of everybody, that that was normal. Or like, oh, just stand there, oh, turn around. And all that stuff was completely normal in my house. Um, and there was nobody to say otherwise. All right, so let's, um, we'll, we'll go back then. So it's happened once. You're devastated and confused because you're so young, you're trying to process it. You can't reach out to your mum. How long was it before it happened again? Um, it was whenever my mother was away. So that could be anything from, you mean, twice a month to once a quarter kind of thing. Um, and you And you earlier on, you said... You know, this bedroom was out back and no one could hear you scream from this bedroom. So was that, you know, a situation where you were screaming while this this was... No, no. I I, I don't think I've ever screamed about that. I think I already knew there's nobody listening. And I know that sounds very defeatist, but I, I wasn't unaware of the situation we lived in I wasn't unaware of the isolation that we lived in constantly 
it wouldn't have mattered who I told, who, who I told. And I actually, it turned out, I was right, actually, because when I did finally come out and tell somebody, it ruined my life. We're going to get to that then. So, you know, the next time he came, was it the same? Did he just say the same things to it you? It was the same. And, and, it, it and was, did you say anything to like him, you know, I'm not going with you, I don't want to do that, I, blah, blah, blah? I, I have, but the problem is, in order to have that conversation, I've got to leave the room because otherwise then my sister's up and then mm. I, I, like, that's not really something I... I what do you say? Once you're out the room, he's got you in his, <laughs> his clutches. Exactly. And it's like, it's, a, and it's an adult and a child, essentially. And it's an adult in a position of authority and power over said child. So if you objected, what would he say to you? There wasn't... Uh, it, it's just not listened to. Like, I don't want to is not something that was ever listened to in my house in any context. We weren't, we didn't have our own opinions, thoughts, weren't asked. We've come home from school and just been told, pack up your stuff because we're moving. We never got asked about any, we didn't have a view or an opinion. Well, the move's part of his strategy to get away with this I activity. I absolutely, I, what I actually believe is that there are multiple victims in multiple places and the fact that we were moving was basically looked like somebody might find out or has found out let's move and i honestly believe that with every fiber of my being that this is what has allowed him to continue to abuse i mean girls and young women do you think that your mum picked up on what was going on at some point <sighs> don't know. I, I, I don't know. What I do know is that having had a face-to-face -face conversation with her to tell her what had been happening, she knows. Yeah, because we had a woman on called Maya, mm -hmm. the, the podcast called Pure Evil Dad. Mm -hmm. And um, when it all came out, she said she felt, thought her mum was going to be like shocked and everything. And um, the mum was pissed off because the dad loved the daughter and not her. God. Yeah. Let me just pose something to you. Yeah. So I, for the longest time, gave my mother the benefit of the doubt and believed that she'd been lied to, manipulated, probably abused in her own relationship with my stepdad anyway, um, which is not unheard of. Um, probably maybe six or seven years ago, my sister called. She was like, oh, have you got your birth certificate? I was like, yeah. She said, oh, have you got your change of name certificate as well? So me and my sister both had our surnames changed to our stepdad's name rather than our birth dad's name, which is not unusual. I mean, blended families, they, they do that. She was like, okay, go, go and get it. I was like, oh, all right, went and got it. She's like, well, what date's on it? And I told her the date. She was like, 
what date did the doc, what date did they get married? And I was like, huh. <laughs> when we checked the dates, the dates on the change of name certificate, which had been stamped by like a the, the judge at the court, was a year before we met him. So we were like, what? How could our mother have allowed her two daughters to change their name to some guy that we had never met, didn't know, and it kind of felt like we'd been sold? Do you know what I mean? And that, I mean, I don't, I don't have the answer. I, I don't have an explanation for it. All I know is that then those dates don't add up. Um, I mean, they, they did eventually ask us, but once they'd asked us and we'd agreed to change our names and obviously produce the paperwork, but then upon reflection, you're like, this, this happened long before, before we were asked or gave consent. And it's just, why would you do that? Why would you, why, why would you do that? So I, I, I haven't delved into it any further because it's going to be nothing good, let's be honest. There's a lot of complicity here, isn't there? Yes, it's going to be nothing good. Um, and I, despite everything, I want to be able to stay in a place where I can forgive them and live my life. Because I do, I, I do want to forgive them. Uh, that doesn't mean like you're in prison and wouldn't be good totally be good <laughs> but for my own well-being sometimes you just got got to understand when there's nothing to uh to, to there's nothing that will benefit me from delving into that so i haven't i've just put it on the pile of it mean the dumpster fire <laughs> because he's built this persona then mm -hmm. as a religious leader yeah is he using that or is he saying anything to you to justify what oh, he's doing to you? Yeah. So um, he decided to become like a qualified qualified pastor. Does he do qualified? I don't know. Some sort of online course to become a recognized minister. Um, and it just meant that at every church community that we were in he made a kind of beeline to be associated with the leaders or sometimes get go in and challenge the leaders and say well actually no god's told me x y and z this mean this person should be gone and again present himself as as the hero of the story so this was a very common threat um, he also made a, made sure that he befriended my grandfather. So my grandfather is a very influential person over our whole family. And of course, being from a generation before the kind of whole, um, head of the household and the, in the male authority over the family, it's a little bit like, uh, Godfather nonsense, <laughs> like where you've got like mm -hmm. you've got the one guy who rules it all, rules it all, and everyone's beholden to them. And he spent years cultivating a relationship with my grandfather 
in order to usurp his authority over the fam the entire family, which he did, he did mightily successfully. Um, and so he would kind of use my grandfather's reputation as a way to ingratiate himself in other Christian communities. Um, it, to the point that he actually conducted my baptism, um, which is crazy. <laughs> um, I'll come. I'll come to. The, I'll come to that bit after. Um, so yeah, he he worked so hard at this persona and was involved in lots of kind of um, like mission organizations and going to speak at places and going abroad and my granddad arranged for him to go to like Haiti and go and preach in Haiti and so he built up all of this momentum and reputation as I'm gonna say it man of God <laughs> um I hate that term with a vengeance which is why I kind of added the air quotes in and I don't dispute that you mean there are some people who you mean God has gifted in lots of different ways but the whole notion of a, a super spiritual sinless kind of man of God who can never be wrong is such a dangerous ideology um you mean it's basically Putin isn't it <laughs> <laughs> basically Putin um uh, and it's it's an unhealthy ideology, which you see a lot in religious um, organizations. And it's something that, for me, total trigger. I'm like, don't don't even say those words to me. If I hear those words, I'm gone. Um, I, as far as I'm concerned, all people are children of God. There's none higher or lower or greater or lesser um, and those that seek to exalt themselves are usually doing it for all the wrong reasons. So, red flag. <laughs> so in the context of what he was doing to you then, the abuse, mm -hmm. was he saying religious things to try and justify it? He, so it didn't start out that way. So I would between the ages of 12 and 15... I would have said that there was no religious element other than what was already going on in the household. That came later. Um, I don't want to skip ahead too far. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it, go, it, let's do it in the order of things happening. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the next thing I need to tell you is how, how I ended up leaving home. So... Is this... Um, before or after you've got a boyfriend coming over and is noticing these things? This overlaps. Okay. Overlaps. So between the ages of 12 and 15 were the instances of, of my stepdad waking me up, taking me to his bed whenever my mother was away. Um, I eventually plucked up the courage to tell my mum. What was going on in your life that gave you the courage to do that? Um, 
I, I couldn't take... maturity as you're getting older and you're realising? And... No, I, I, I couldn't take it anymore. Mm. And to me, it was the... Before we kind of started the interview, I, did, I said that I'm a very justice-minded person. And it was that that caused me to be unable to hold it in. And it actually wasn't about justice for me. For me, it was about the dishonor to my mother. And it's like, I've got to tell her. Um, and because there, I suspected that there were other women as well. Kids, maybe, as well. It, yeah. I, I, so I just, I, that is what drove me to eventually tell it. And it is probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. In Let's go life. through this slowly then. Okay. H had, had it just happened to you again that, that caused you to think this enough is enough? Um, I, don't I don't remember. Okay. Actually, I, I honestly don't remember. So how old were you at this point of the story? So I was 15. You're 15. 15. Is, is um, you waiting for her to be alone to tell her? Yeah. And where, where is she? At so the, at, at she the... was in the kitchen. I I don't know where, where my siblings were. I have, like I said, that whole incident was, it was traumatic. It, it really, really was. And I just remember feeling sick and dizzy and trying to work out what I was going to say, how I was going to say it, and then remembering to do that. And I don't even know how well I explained it to her. Um, she was in the kitchen, she was busy in the kitchen, didn't stop what she was doing to listen to me. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a mother. I don't know if you've got got any children, but if your child starts to explain that they're being harmed and abused in some way, like you don't just carry on doing what you're doing, do you? Can you remember specifically what you said to her? I, I think I tried to be gentle. <laughs> so trying to explain to her I, I think I explained how, that how did you broach the subject I just I told her that there was something important that I needed to needed to tell her and that it might upset her um and I didn't know who else to talk to about it but I felt that she needed to know um and I think I tried to provide her with the context um, so I think I tried to say how uncomfortable I felt around my stepdad and that sometimes he'd been like inappropriate and touching me and, and things like that. And I think I eventually then worked up to, oh, and um, he's been asking me to get into his bed while you're away. As this conversation is progressing, is she just listening to you or is she interjecting? She, no, she, she didn't say a thing. Okay. She didn't say a thing. And once I'd finished kind of telling her, she carried on doing what she was doing. I, I don't know if she was baking or, I don't know. She, she was doing something in the kitchen and she didn't stop. And kind of once I'd finished talking, she just looked at me and said, are you sure that's what happened? And I'm like, yes, yes, I'm sure that's what happened. And she was like, okay. Like, just okay. And then I left. So she did, I didn't get like, a hug or an acknowledgement that you mean 
the trauma of the situation. There was no anger about what had happened. There was, I mean, I could kind of feel she was angry. Um, Because that could go either way, couldn't it? It could be she's in shock. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to complicity. Yeah. So I don't, don't, at that time, I don't, it didn't feel like she was complicit or anything. She just shut down um, and just said like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I was like, okay. And that, that, that was the entire conversation. Um, about maybe two or three days later, I got summoned to the living room. So they're both there, mom and stepdad. I think they've made sure that the other kids are out of earshot and whatnot. And so I'm at one end of the living room. They're sat at the other end of the living room. And basically my mum starts to tear strips off me. How dare I say these things about her husband? I'm trying to ruin their marriage. Um, that she thought I was better than that. She didn't think she'd raised, um, uh, ra- raised a, a child that way. Um, how much... I'm trying to destroy his reputation. Uh, <laughs> and who else was in the room? My stepdad, just those two. Just and he sat there and didn't say a thing. And I just saw a little smirk. And he sat there supporting my mother while she tore strips off me. And I... I, I didn't... I don't think, I don't, even now I'm just like, how does one digest that? So it's gone from, you mean a child disclosing abuse to the one person in the whole world who, you mean, should have your back to that same person calling me for everything about the wickedness I'd visited upon them. And I was like... <laughs> it's been devastating. I, I still have no words. I still have no words because she she was fuming, absolutely fuming, um, and to add insult to injury, not only was she having a go at me about trying like like I was some sort of marriage wrecker, um. And how I was, you mean, destroying his reputation and about how wicked I was and, you mean, God's going to punish me, or all those things. I remember her saying, um, using a word I'd never actually heard before. She used the word molested. And I literally remember sitting there thinking, what's molested? Because I'd never actually heard the word before. Um... They, I say they, my mum then told me that they'd already spoken to to the leaders at church um, who'd been made aware of what I had been doing and the lies that I'd been telling um, and that they were kind of recommending that I go in to be like prayed for. And it's like that, that day my world died. Because not only had I been abused, the one person who should have had my back to defend me 
not only did she not defend me, she teamed up with my abuser to attack me. I was actually innocent. And the only place that I could have gone to to get any help, they'd gone there before me to make sure that everybody already knew that I was a liar and that I'd accused this wonderful man of, of, of molesting me. And so they, there was no defense or protection for me at all. And that is probably one of the most scarring things that's ever happened to me. And I, I carried that around for 25 years. For 25 years, the whole of my family all believed that I'd lied and that I'd caused this problem and that it was my fault and I tried to destroy their marriage. It's a, heavy, it's a heavy load for a 15-year-old. Heartbreaking. So what was the role of your boyfriend in this at this time? Um, so I use the term boyfriend very loosely. So I, after, after that, I mean, my both my parents, they stopped speaking to me for like a month. <laughs> like just... Are you still in the house at this point? I'm still in the house, yeah. They, they would not speak to me. Um, I think my stepdad was the first to start speaking to me again. But then it's, you're in that horrible situation where the whole world was gaslighting me. The whole world was saying, this never happened. You lied. The whole world. Um, I, I didn't know what gaslighting was at the time. All I knew was that my truth was being presented as a lie. And because of that made me a liar. I'm the bad guy in this story, and that's how I was treated. Um, Did he try and do it again? No. No. I I, I was definitely uh, black-sheeped um, at that point. So he spoke to me again before my mum did. My mum was, she was vicious with it. She, it's like I didn't exist. Um, and for somebody who's grown up, with only the people in their house to relate to, it was a huge, it was a huge, huge deal. Um, but that kind of spurred me to, so things like I stopped coming home after school and I just go and hang out with people, whoever. Um, and I think I'd been um, one of the lads at my school. He didn't have a great family life either. So he was already living by himself at 15. Mm. I think he'd been in foster care and, and things like that. So I just kind of stayed on his floor for a couple of weeks. Um, and like a shared house. And the landlord was just showing some new, new people around and just befriended some guy. We got chatting. Turned out he lived at the bottom of the street where my parents lived. And so rather than going home, I just went there. Um, eventually went and picked up my stuff. Um, and that's the, I don't even know how to explain it. So I think for me at that time, being 15 years old and having had this horrendous experience, I was befriended by and befriended an older guy 
similar age to my stepdad, actually, maybe like a year apart <laughs> or something. So they were sim similar age, but I felt completely like much safer with this version than the version that was that was at home. So things like he'd walk me back to my parents' house to collect collect things, and my stepdad would come flying out the house and you know, started like an actual physical fight, screaming at this guy to you know, mean get off my property, stay away from my daughter, rah rah rah. So you've got this whole twisted um, kind of gaslighting. What you say is a lie. Like you're just making this stuff up. You you just you mean trying to destroy us. Blah blah blah. And then on the flip side, me trying to escape and having attention from another man turns him into some kind of jealous rage monster. And it's the feeling of own of being owned never really left. And so it was very easy after that point to just not go back. Um, so I didn't. <laughs> so this other older man then, was the attention from him appropriate or inappropriate? I have no idea because mm. um, <laughs> I do have a friend who refers to him as, oh, the paedophile, you mean? <laughs> I never, ever saw it like that. Uh, I mean, we, we, we did have a sexual relationship. Um, it felt to me quite normal and you mean enjoyable I and mean, we and it stayed in a relationship for like seven years so it's not like it was a fly by night type of thing did he know what happened yeah and did the, the you know the lad who oh, came no, no, no. okay but he knew that i'd left home he knew that i'd left home because of family issues he didn't know the extent no, no nobody knew the extent but my... what about the lad who saw um your dad stepdad inappropriately touching you who, who, who commented on it did he know the extent of what no, happened no 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 nobody well, was that the one whose floor you were sleeping on uh no no it was a they, they were diff, different people okay but no, no, nobody knew because i don't know if you're able to understand this the way that i explain it the way that we learn is through experience. So if you've done something and the experience has been not only negative but traumatic, the likelihood of you doing that again is slim to none. That's what happened when I told the truth. I told the truth about what had been happening to me and my world blew up. They made damn sure that I was not going to tell anyone again. And I didn't for a really, really long time. There was no, in my eyes anyway, I was like, if my own mother won't even listen to me or defend me and is now actually in attack mode and trying to destroy. What hope is that? What hope is a straight, yeah. So I, I never mentioned it again for the longest time. All right, so you get, you get out the house. Mm -hmm. The stepdad abuse stops. You're in a consensual yeah. relationship with an older man. Yeah. For seven years? Yeah. And what was your life like? Was that was it abuse-free, that seven years? <laughs> I, I think it was abuse-free. But I think there'd be a lot of frowning going on. Because <laughs> how old were you? At, at, so I was 15 when I, when I met him. So legally then, you were underage in this Yeah, country. legally I was, yeah. I was underage. So I think I was 
pretty soon 16. I mean, I still, I was still attending school, did my GCSEs and whatnot, um, went to college. Um, was he, was he generally okay with you though? He, he, in my, he was great. I, I thought he was great. He showed me a world I'd never seen because I'd never seen the world. So and, you got music, TV, books, uh, we, all that stuff. We were all going like festivals, dancing, e exactly. I, I had <laughs> the best time. Unfortunately, um, because of my level of ignorance and his kind of carefree approach to life, um, so the first drug I tried was heroin. At what age? I was at 15. So he introduced you to heroin at age 15? Yes. Oh my God. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was heroin. So it was kind of like a, it was a shared house and so people were in and out. And, you know, smoking or injecting? Uh, smoking. Um, and it was just like a group of people though, you mean having a sesh as people do. Um, and they're like, oh, do you, oh, do you want some brown? And I was like, all right. <laughs> Cause I, I'd never heard of heroin. I'd never, didn't know drugs were bad. Didn't know that you could become an addict. Was. No, I had no clue. Um, and so that, I mean, I wasn't, I, I just didn't know. I just didn't know. And it was just one of a number of things that people were taking. So there was like, uh, I mean, am I allowed to list them on on the on the YouTube or shall I just, let's just say there was, there was a lot of substances. <laughs> um, Did um, the first time you took heroin then, because, you know, from interviewing people who've been through things, mm -hmm. they're not given the tools to deal with it. They can't, it's difficult to process at a young age. And then when they do get onto drugs, street drugs, which many of them do, the majority, I would say, they take that drug and all that trauma, all of a sudden, it's, it's especially with heroin, because it's like... Um, it's a depressant, isn't it? And yeah, it, kind of, uh, it puts you so opi far out opiate, of it. Opiate, softens, opiate. Softens the trauma. Is that what happened with you? Definitely. Definitely. So you thought, right, this is something that's probably good for my mind right now. Um, for me, it was all about escape. That's why I ran away from home. That was an escape. You mean hooking up with this older guy? That was an escape. And he actually made me feel the safest that I'd probably felt in the past five, seven years. Um, he was he was always a gentleman. I mean, he, he he let me see the world in a semi-safe <laughs> manner. Do you mean? I, I never felt abandoned or abused or, or anything like that um, during most of the time that we were together. And I think the only reason we didn't stay together was um, because of his addiction, really. Did it get uh, accelerated? Yeah, yeah, definitely. How, how did that show itself? I mean, I've, I've always worked, so irrespective of what drugs I was or wasn't taking, because I'd kind of left home so young. I think back in those days, I, I couldn't claim any benefits because I was too young. Um, but I could get a job. <laughs> um, so I, I always I always had a like a part-time job when I was at school and when I went to, um, to college. And it crept in, but... I eventually realized that I was financially supporting both of us. And it got to the point where I think he was claiming disability benefits for whatever health condition. And I, I'd get paid 
And then at the end of the week, neighbours would be knocking on the door. Oh, he owes me this money. Oh, he owes me that money. And oh, so basically, I was paying off all his debts that he'd accumulated over the week. Um, whenever he got paid, disappear for for the day, come back broke, and just it, it just got to the point where it was just like I I can't do this. This isn't a relationship anymore. Actually, you're just taking advantage of me. Um, so I ended it. Um, even then, I never really understood what addiction was. So I ended up going through my withdrawal from heroin. Just thought I was had the flu or I was sick. <laughs> How many years were you doing heroin for? Uh, I think altogether about 13. Does it progress to injecting it? No, I've never injected and um, I've never injected any drugs mostly because I was scared to die. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, no, I've, I've never in injected any drugs. So um, what was the withdrawal like? Um, I had contents coming out of both ends oh. at the same time. I, being cold, and I, mean, I was on my own as well, so I was living in some... It was just a step up from a bomb-D. Um, for those of you who don't know... Mm. <laughs> Uh, Bomb-D is a scouse term for a dilap dilapidated abode. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was dilapidated. There was like a hole in the ceiling where like a hurricane came through. It was in the top of a really big building. And so the sloped roof in one room and there was holes there. You could hear the rats running about. Broken glass in the windows. So it was just a hovel like absolute hovel and I was so so sick um I, I just assumed that I'd like I'd caught something um yeah it was in, in fact actually I, I should be a bit clearer with this I didn't take heroin for the whole entire time so it would have been from let me see 15 to about 20 21 and I think after that point, I just kind of dabbled and found other substances that I liked. Because, um, yeah, when I did my um, kind of withdrawal, not knowing at the time that that's what was happening, and honestly, I'm actually really thankful for that little bit of ignorance because mm. had I known what it was, I'd have gone and fixed it, wouldn't I, in the worst possible way. And, you mean, uh, gone and taken more drugs and just continued the cycle. Um, what was your relationship with your sister like over these years um, from 15 to early 20s my best buddy in the whole world so you were still in contact and she was she was the, the only one that I was actually in contact with um, I didn't speak to my stepdad for maybe three four years I, I just refused to have anything to do with him but of course my that also included my mother um not that that's what I wanted, it isn't what I wanted at all. It also meant I missed out on kind of developing any kind of real relationship with my younger brother as well. Um, but no, me and my sister, have, we always just had each other and it, it hasn't mattered what I've gone through or what she's gone through. Um, she's, she's always been there and I've Good. always been there. Um, 
we do describe each other as like she like she's my other half. <laughs> yeah. And like the in the best possible way. I mean, I would always say she's the better half. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> what were the circumstances whereby you had to meet your stepdad again then? Right. I mean, so, that must have been head wrecking. It's horrendous. So the first relationship I had with this older guy, um, we we've actually moved all the way down south to to Somerset, um, which I absolutely I loved, absolutely loved it down there. Um, the drugs were already starting to get a bit on top, um, but my sister um, got pregnant very young, and I was just like. Actually, I don't want to be away from her. So we moved back to the area where the family were living. And we didn't have anywhere to stay. So I kind of, you mean, mom, is it okay if you mean me and my boyfriend come and live with you for a couple of months till we found somewhere to live? Which, because so much time had passed, I thought would be... I knew I wasn't going to convince anybody of what happened. Like, that was a given. So it was either get over it and get your family back or don't see any of them again. That, that, and because that's how they've always played, it's either our way or the highway. I knew that was the case. So me and my then boyfriend um, moved in and paid rent for one of the rooms at my um, parents' house. Um, How weird was that then? <sighs> Describe seeing him again after all those years. Uh, he carried on like nothing had happened, but so did my mum. He wasn't a touchy-feely? No, what we had instead was he refused to speak to my boyfriend at all, ever. So he'd speak to me and even conversate with everybody in the house refused to speak. So being like a room full of like chatting or dinner time, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's the most childish, manipulative. So we, we had to share a house knowing that my stepdad refused to speak to my boyfriend ever. And obviously we didn't stay long. Did it come to blows between them again? No, it came to blows between me and my stepdad. Cause I was just like- Phys An actual physical fight? It wasn't quite a physical thing. I was definitely screaming. <laughs> what what triggered that? Um, I think he started to, to badmouth my boyfriend about something or other. And I was just like, don't you effing dare. Like, how how dare you? Like, I know you. <laughs> like, I know who you are, what you're like. You've got no right to be chastising and beating down this lovely guy who's actually been looking after me all, all these and it was it came across as a jealous boyfriend and it's horrible and he's and, always deflecting from what he's done uh, isn't he? and so having to live it's like living in a house with your boyfriend and your ex <laughs> like, mm. like nobody would choose to do that would they and what was your mum's attitude towards you staying there? Um, I honestly don't know. 
are the lady who I thought she was, turns out she wasn't. And we've never really been close. When I was very, very young, she was all broken up about her husband, which, I mean, is fine. After that point, she just worked and worked and worked. So we had people living with us because she was at work. Um, then when my stepdad came along, she was still at work. Um, and so she she was absent a lot. And despite what had happened, I still had a better relationship with my stepdad than I did with my mother. Wow. Um, and that's because, oh, he put the time in. So, and it's, it's twisted. I, I get that it's twisted, but I mean, he'd check in on you. Um, he'd like, oh, let's go, I'll go, go and treat you. Or you mean, you just take the time to, oh, what's going on today? And she never did any of that ever. Um, like, oh, let's have a look at your homework. And there's all those sorts of things that is like normal familial um interaction she didn't do that and it's like she had abandoned us to him and it is so yeah she was she was at work did they have any more <laughs> kids other than your brother no no um so yeah she, she was just absent that's all I can say. She never really, she never ever volunteered how she felt about something. She would be angry or stoic or choose to ignore or give the silent treatment. But I have never heard her own, other than that, I mean, day in the living room, never heard her tell me what she really thinks or feels. So you stayed with your, um, with them then, mm -hmm. and then you went to a... Um, we ju um, we've lived at a couple of places in, this, in the same area, um, Liverpool side. Um, and for, for the best part, um, Actually, I, think, I actually think moving to Liverpool was really good for me and really bad for my boyfriend at the time. Mm. So what had been, you mean, manageable drug use? A lot of drugs here. Liverpool has a lot of drugs here. So that's immediately kind of what we gravitated to. And his addiction escalated. I mean, I was, I was still working, so I was going to work every day. Um, what was your job? Um, I had several over the time. So I remember working in Garston at a franking machine company. <laughs> <laughs> I had a dodgy sales job for some <laughs> scam company that supposedly sold diaries. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the diaries were supposed to go to like emergency services and then they were getting local companies to put an ad in the diary. And I was probably there about three or four months. It's like, has anyone ever actually seen one of these diaries? <laughs> and so they had a couple there, but then there were like a few years old, like these diaries never existed. Oh, dear. And so they just had a bunch of us on the phone selling advertising to any Tom, Dick and Harry. Yeah. Um, 
didn't stay there too long. Um, I worked for a, um, was it a solicitor's? I think it was a solicitor's um, mortgage company. There we go. It was a, I worked for a mortgage company selling um, the right to buy scheme to council tenants, which I actually really enjoyed, to be honest <laughs> with you. I really enjoyed that. Um, used to work for Kirby, <laughs> Kirby Vacuum, <laughs> um, as a, um, like a vacuum technician, essentially. So repairing Kirby vacuum cleaners, which I, again, loved. Um, I did get the sack because <laughs> <laughs> I can't find my way around. It was like... <laughs> This was like pre-sat now, so just let people know, pre-sat now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, just, I couldn't find my way around. So I was going to clients' houses to like repair their vacuum cleaners. Um, also got, mm. you mean, taught to upsell whilst I was there, that, that kind of thing. And I think at the time, I think the Kirby's were going for like two grand. Weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they were like. They were like big, and so some of the houses we went to were like you mean huge, big mansions <laughs> and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, I was late for nearly every single job because I couldn't read because I can't read a map. <laughs> I still can't read a map, <laughs> but I, I genuinely loved that job. Um, so I've, I've carried it on now because I love, um, like DIY and, and things mm. like that. So I love I love building things and making things. Um, but yeah, apparently navigating is not. Well, I'm glad you <laughs> got here today. It's not. Not <laughs> honestly. I'm just. I was so impressed with myself. I got here the, like the first time. I didn't get lost or end up in a random place. I was like, oh yes. <laughs> so, how old are you when you broke up with the older man? I was twenty-one. And what was your plan for that after that? I didn't have one, which is possibly where where the problem started so i um i was working i was working which which was great couldn't stay in the flat that we shared so then i had to move to a to another flat which was the the horrible broke down bombed place that i was in um and because of our associates through drug use they were basically the only people that i knew so I kind of continued hanging out with those sorts, um, those sorts of people. Um, and I was kind of, I mean, I was, I was using a lot of crack was my uh, drug of choice at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I was using that a lot, spending a lot, but as it was kind of like just me and, I, and I've got a job and car and all, all that kind of stuff. And I had gone for a job interview. Um, I can't remember. It was, I think it was like a sales job somewhere. So it was just, it was closer than the one that I was working at at the time. Went for the job interview, um, which ended up, <laughs> started working in a pub. Oh, sorry, sorry, the interview was in a pub. So I think one of my neighbours on the road had said, oh, like somebody that I know has got a business and is looking for new staff. And so gave the, gave the contact details and then I arranged to meet this guy in the local pub, like over the road. 
um, for my interview. Um, the interview went really well. And like, we hit it off immediately. Um, he, he was an exceptionally charismatic, confident, um, intelligent guy, like, totally whisked me off my, off my feet. So kind of at the end of the interview, he was like, well, you've definitely got the job. And I was just like, well, if I work for you, then nothing can happen between us because I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. Um, so in the end, I didn't take the job um, and kind of started dating this guy. And it was a whirlwind, absolute whirlwind. So he ran his own business. He got like offices in like the good part of town and <laughs> whole team of staff and everything. And like every night was like ate out every night. <laughs> and you mean out drinking and clubbing and, and all, all the rest of it. So it was kind of doing that in between, like staying at mine, staying at his, going to work and I think within a month, I wasn't really going home that much. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I, well, why have you still got that got that crappy little fl flat? It's like, just just get rid of it. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, no, but like, I mean, still want my independence, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Any, anyway, let's just say he's very persuasive, very, very persuasive. And, of course, he had a, a, a lovely place, like, you mean, in a good part of town and <laughs> everything that I needed. Um and I was just like, oh, my God, this is amazing, <laughs> as, as you do. Um, so eventually moved in, got rid of my own flat. Then he was like, doesn't make any sense you keep working somewhere else. Like, why are you working there? You can just go and work for me. And then, like, we're both making money out I mean, from the business and blah, blah, blah. Persuaded me to give up my job and go and work for him, um, which I did. And... Unfortunately for me, because my stepdad had treated me the way that he had, I think I was just an easy target. And oh. I don't I, I don't say that to suggest that he purposely sought me out. I don't think that's what happened at all. I just think that two very unhealthy people attracted were attracted to each other's unhealthiness. Because from what you described so far, it sounds like you're having the time of your life. I was having the but time. But now it's going to flip, is it? Yeah, I was having the time of my life. Um, thought I'd found the one. He was head over heels in love with me, vice versa. Um, and you know, things happen so slowly. So first of all, I gave up my flat. Then um, I gave up my job and I started working for him. Turns out I was awesome at this job so I, I was probably I was getting paid my salary I was probably bringing two to three k in commissions like every two months so it was mm -hmm. like he did begrudge giving me that I was like but and I was like well did the work <laughs> um so for like the first year was amazing like we went on he took me on holiday abroad at least three times um, he'd been married before, so I met his ex and his two kids and, like, all really got along well. Um, and, 
you don't notice it at the time. So things like, oh, I want to go and like, oh, pop up and see my mom or things like that. And so we'd come initially, but then it's like, oh, no, we're too busy. Like, we'll, we'll have to plan it for some other time. Like, I've got meetings or this, that, and other. So it did the same thing as my stepdad, where my world shrunk and I was being isolated from people. So crew that I used to hang out with and you know I mean smoke drugs and all, and all the rest of it kind of like make you very like uh awkward introductions and then it's like who's that who's that you I mean used to love call, calling people the scum of the earth I was like they're the scum of the earth you're not hanging around with them blah blah blah, blah. and it's like I get that a bit rough around the edges but actually they're all right people do you know what I mean so they were cut off immediately. Like I wasn't allowed to have any kind of contact with them because, oh, you think you can do better. You don't need to be hanging around with them, which is probably true. Um, so then I'd be going, if he had business meetings or, or times when he had to go away, so I'd end up away with him and just my world contracted. Um, and he, he's a very, he's a person who lavishes so he'd always buy me new clothes and makeup and he'd be like, you'd come down in the morning, oh no, don't wear that, wear this. Um, so that, he started putting my makeup on and then what? putting my makeup on, bought me a mobile phone. So things like, I'd go to the paper shop and I'd come back and he'd start, you, how long have you gone? Like, like, where have you been? Have you been hooking up with the guy at the paper shop? And so he was super jealous of everything and anything. And I was like, I just went to the shop, like, um, at work. He wouldn't, it got to the point, he wouldn't let me go anywhere on my own. So when I had to use the bathroom at work, no. I'd have to let him know. And so he'd come to the bathroom and no. watch me go to the toilets. You're talking number twos? Oh, number ones. Nobody does a number two at work. <laughs> um, and this is all mixed in with, you know I mean, Drinking and clubbing every night, um, meeting people in clubs and bars and then bringing them home and him staying up all night. Um, there'd been more than one occasion where he like, we brought people home from the club. I've gone up to bed because I'm, like, I'm going to get up for work. Um, and he comes up much later to tell me how amazing such and such as Lady Hole was. <laughs> what? Mm, yes. I'm Hold on, slow down. Slow down, I've got to get this. You go to bed, he's brought some people at home back from the club. Yeah. He's saying it's sexual. Well, it didn't seem sexual at the time because it could be men, women, mixture. Mm. He was, like I say, he was a very charismatic person. So he always had a crowd around him, always, wherever he went, People knew him, and he only knew such and such from this. And he was so he was a very popular person. Was this fueled by coke? Oh, there was definitely coke. There was definitely. I mean, it's not my bag particularly, but he he used coke, and he so he drank a lot of alcohol. And it took me a good probably eighteen months to realise that he was an alcoholic. Um. Again, not really understanding addiction or, or any of those things. So he would, at lunchtime, there's always a business meeting of some sorts. 
So he's whining and dining people. And so there's at least two bottles of wine polished off at lunchtime. But the rest of it, most of us would be like, oh, I've got to go to bed now. <laughs> but he just carries on. After six o'clock, he would refuse to drink soft drinks, tea, coffee. He'd only drink alcohol after 6 p.m. So even at home, it would be like half a box of red wine, probably half to three quarters of a bottle of whiskey with the red wine. Then that's not enough. Then we need to go out to the club and we get to, and it's tequila shots, bottles of beer, lines of coke. So he was, uh, I don't know what the, what the word is for it. He's like functioning as a business owner, but he's got major addiction issues. Yeah, but he was also the life and soul of everywhere we went all the time. Well, when you're on substances, you are, aren't you? Yeah. lit up. Yeah. And it was hard not to be impressed mm. by him because he, he was super intellectual, could hold... We had the best conversations, <laughs> honestly, and I love all that. Best conversations, super intelligent, loved to like dance. I loved to dance. So I, I was honestly having a great time. It's like, yeah, he was a bit weird and a bit kind of over possessive sometimes, but we all have our weird traits. And having basically been raised in that, it didn't seem like it didn't seem alarming because that's all I've actually known. Mm. <laughs> um, so, in the what, beginning, then, was there a degree whereby you were conforming because it was what you were conditioned to? I definitely think so. And I still had in my mind, so kind of growing up, um, and I think this is probably more so for women in, I don't know if it's the same in other religions, but certainly in the Christian religion, there is that expectation that you will be a wife and that you will be a mother and that your life isn't complete until you have achieved at least one of those those two things. And so I always expected that I would get married. I, like, I knew what kids, I knew how many kids I wanted and their names and all, all of that sort of stuff. Um, Damon was from a Catholic family. So he, he, although we didn't have the same faith, he understood the kind of those religious values. Um, he, even though he was married and divorced, he looked after his ex-wife financially and looked after his kids kids were in private schools and he seemed he seemed to be very responsible very caring very generous um and and he kind of was all of those things what I didn't understand at the time was the motive that's what I found out much much later and it was basically a repetition of my stepdad mm. so all of those like oh just come and work here just come and stay here just be with me i want to be with you blah 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 just you and him materialized into me rarely being able to see my family um i think my sister used to come and visit me um every couple of months because it was easier than trying to find a way to make him make the time for me to go and see see her um his paranoia over me um, kind of having an affair or sleeping with other people, which was crazy because I'm just like, if I'm with you 24 hours a day, when do you think this is happening? Usually people are accusing others of the it's, ones the doing Don's it. The doing it, ex yeah. exactly. Um, and so in order to kind of manage his kind of jealousy, it meant me having to restricted in some way so 
um, he wanted to make sure, he bought me a new mobile phone. Seemed like a great gift. But that also came with every month we'd have to sit down literally with the itemized bill and go through the bill. Anyone, what's that number? Who's this number? Oh. When did you ring them? Like, who's this? Is this somebody that, is this a guy? Is this a, and every, every month. Like I said, going to the shop became a trauma because he was, and I, I mean, the combination of lack of sleep, drugs and alcohol, plus a, you mean a narcissistic temperament, just created this. Obsessive and jealous uh, as well. Yeah. So, I mean, he clocked straight away my stepdad's feelings and intentions towards did me. He? Straight away. How did he express that? Um, he was very, he, was, he said, your stepdad wants you. Without a hesitation. And I'm like, no, don't be daft. Don't be daft. So you were hiding it, it? Yeah. It's like, don't be, don't be daft. Like, it's like, no, like he, like he wants you. I saw the way he was looking at you and the way that he touches you. And it was like, it was really confronting. Massively confronting. Did he confront him because he had that personality of you had to be they, alone? They, they have had words for sure can you remember, and hated each other. Can you remember how that conversation happened? No, I think I just exited. Um, but again, and it fueled that, right, we're not going back then. What did you see before you exited? Um, so <laughs> Damon really loved to um, own people. I say own people. To have people um, be ingratiated to him by him giving them things. So he was always like lending money or you need a deposit for your house or you need a new car. Or you... And so he was, he looks really generous. But then it's, well, well, I did this for you so you can do this for me now, can't you? If I'm asking, I'm not being unreasonable. I gave you 500 quid. <laughs> um, and so he, and that's the tactic he does with everybody. Presumably that's what happened to me. <laughs> and so he did the same with my with my family. Um, Gave him money for what? Well, just just being o over generous. Um, and I don't know what he'd offered my stepdad. I have no idea, but my stepdad refused to take it. Mm. That's where, where the clash came. And it's like having two separate conversations, one with my, like my new partner, Saying like, ah, uh, no, he's the wrong one. Won't take my money. Blah 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 blah. And then I've got from this end, oh no, he's trying to he's trying to buy me, and like I don't trust his motives, and blah blah. Like it was like being stuck in the middle of two devils, mm. <laughs> right? And I'm laughing about it. It's not funny. It, it really isn't funny. Um, and I had never met somebody as controlling as. Damon before um and at its worst um I mean we, it did get physically violent when was the first time that happened I think it was when I got pregnant actually I don't know why that triggered something how many years in after you'd met him did you get pregnant um it would have been about 18 months, okay. yeah, 18 months, just going up two years probably. And what triggered the violence? I I don't know. 
It was the weirdest, because we'd, we'd talked about it. It was a planned pregnancy. It wasn't an unplanned pregnancy. We'd got married by this point. Because you think that would give him even more control over you, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, the way, the way you look at it. do you know what? I should... I should probably re rewind because I missed a very important, oh, yeah. <laughs> a very important incident. Please do. So I, I think I've mentioned to you about him not not liking the unsavory people that I used to hang around with, etc. Um, I was walk. We were walking home from we been out to dinner or something like that. Walking home and there was a working girl out on the road, and I did know her because she used to work up. Where I, where I used to live. And so I'd spoken to her in the road. I'm sure we'd probably bought drugs together at some point. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So um, I said hi to her. She said hi back. And we just had like a little catch up. And I, I gave, her, gave her a hug. And then, and then carried on. Well, he was fuming. Absolutely fuming. Um, and basically accused me of like being a prostitute and hiding it. And I was just... You know, and there's not enough. It's like, how do you prove that you're not a prostitute? <laughs> like, mm. like, like that there isn't. And so it spawned this huge, massive like argument between us. Me trying to say she's like she's just a like a girl, a woman that I, that I know. Like we've hung around a bit, don't know her that well, but uh, and he, he had absolutely none of it. And so the culmination of this um, argument. Um, I had, I don't even know where I'd gone out. I think just away because he's very suffocating, very, very suffocating. Came back and he'd put all of my things in bin bags. Put all of my stuff in bin bags. Um, and gave me an ultimatum that everyone's probably going to be screaming, say no, say no. So the ultimatum was either... Um, we get married straight away, um, and he gets to just kind of decide who we have in our lives and who we don't, or I take these bin bags now, leave the house and never come back. I can hear him screaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I... And I, again, I hadn't, I mean, this was about a year into our, our relationship and I didn't, I didn't have enough knowledge and foresight to see it for what it was. Um, and because I'd kind of grown up in a house where I was, um, just forced to constantly submit to another's will for everything and always seemed like the most natural thing in the world that if you love somebody, you give them what they want. And it seemed like a really easy decision. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? A really easy decision that felt right. Like, this is what you want. Cool. Let me give it to you. Um, and it's, it gave him permission to be himself so that's when the kind of verbal um verbal abuse to the likes i've never heard before or since i didn't know people could think those things formulate them and come out of their mouths Are you able to give an example or is it too graphic i 
I, I can't give an example. I'm just so unlike him in any way. I've never heard such vicious, cruel, disgusting words pour. And so it's not like it's a... It's probably best we don't say any of those. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like being poured... Like if someone poured a barrel of hot tar over you, mm. that's what his words felt like. And it was like they burned, they were burning through your skin and you can't get it off and it's hot and you scream and it, but it won't stop. That's what the verbal abuse was like. And I'd never experienced anything like that in mm. my whole life. Um, when the physical abuse started and... I said before, I don't really have a flight. <laughs> I just have a fight. So I've got to be honest, like we fought with each other. Um, and I attempted to give as good as I, as I got initially. Um, I could, I can be very angry. You mean, I've been working on it. <laughs> I can be very angry, volatile, explosive and because I was with somebody who was also like that. So having this torrent of verbal abuse in the manner that it came to me was something I could only tolerate to a certain point. And when that pot boiled over, I I boiled over. And so that I'd be throwing things and I mean, shouting abuse back. And so we, we did, we, we, we fought with each other. Um, one of the things that alerted me to the level of his substance abuse, which I didn't know for a really long time, was the next day he'd wake up like nothing happened with no memory of what had um, happened the night before. Cross that line. Um, and so I was then left with all of this hurt and pain and anger for all the things he'd said, he'd done... Uh, and he's got no memory of it mm. and is treating me like I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, like like it, more gaslighting. Mm. <laughs> um, and you're pregnant. And I'm pregnant at this point. Um, he, I, I don't know what it is about um, pregnancy and domestic violence. Um, I mean, I actually volunteer for um, a domestic abuse charity called The Crossing mm. Point. So I just want to give them a shout out because <laughs> uh, although they weren't able to support me at that time, I the work they do is so, so valuable. Um, and so I support them at every opportunity. Are they Liverpool only or nationwide? Um, they've got nationwide networks, but they they cover kind of Merseyside. But they can't, they, they, the network means that they can support people from any part of the UK. Um, actually, a, the my book, so a um, 40% of the profits from my book all go back to the Crossing Point Domestic Abuse oh. Charity because um, I didn't have anywhere to turn to. And I, if I can give that lifeline to another person, and there, statistics show that pregnant women are at higher risk of domestic violence 
compared to non-pregnant women. And I don't understand the thinking or the rationale behind that. I imagine that tensions are just strained in the relationship from what's how it's mm. been before. I mean, we, we planned our pregnancy. Mm. So it wasn't, it didn't come unexpectedly. It took us six months to get pregnant. Mm. Um, so to then go from having planned a pregnancy to it actually happening and being really excited mm. to so the escalation of the drugs and alcohol and violent and intoxicated behavior mm. just so of course i couldn't mm. i couldn't partake in those things anymore because i was pregnant so wasn't smoking wasn't drinking wasn't doing any drugs and so when he was going out he was just going out by himself and it had occasions where um he was trying to commit suicide by throwing himself out of a third-story window. How did you find out about that? Uh, the, the window was in our bedroom. <laughs> so you were present? I, I was there, yeah. You'd had an argument? Um, I don't even know if he'd been out. I was asleep, so he came. It was late, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. He'd been out drinking and just came home irrational about whatever he'd been thinking about, which I actually don't know what that was. He was fairly incoherent. And um, it's like an uh, it's a old Georgian building, so it's still got some of the sa got sash cord windows, when, so you, you could get out of them. And you know, I mean, he was just in his pants, drunk off his head, drinking out of a half drunk bottle of whiskey. You mean feet on the window ledge, trying to squat to jump out of the wind, and it's like you mean saving his life, <laughs> like physically having to save his life. And he probably never even remembered the next day. Bingo. Didn't remember. Um, I, he'd come home other times, um, been dragged out of bed by my hair. Uh, mm. We lived in like a maisonette with, um, on three floors with a spiral staircase. Beautiful, like proper stunning place. But yeah, I've been dragged down that staircase. While you're pregnant. Whilst you're pregnant, it's wood and wrought iron dragged down by my hair. And I couldn't get him to snap out of it to stop what he was doing. It's one of the most frightening things that's ever happened to me. I'm being kicked, I'm being punched. And bear in mind, like, it dragged me out of my sleep. I was asleep, so it's not like we were arguing or anything had happened. It's not conducive to having a baby, this environment. No. No, no not at all. Um, the... I mean, the police had started to get, get involved on a fairly regular basis by this point. But of course, every time I called the police, he answered the door and spun the story that I was the one that was being violent and irrational. And I mean, I'd got a drug problem and he was helping me and blah, blah, blah. And I never actually was able to kind of get out of the house to speak to the police. He made sure that... I, that that option, it wasn't an option for me. Um, and it's massively, I mean, I know police are a bit more aware about things like that now. Um, but at the time, uh, like that awareness just wasn't there. And it was, you mean, skinny little black girl version of events versus the middle-class white man who's got lots of money and a good reputation and loved by all. <laughs> mm. And I just, I, I didn't, stand, didn't stand a chance. Um, I, I attempted to run away so many times and I couldn't. 
because he was obsessive, stalker. So if I ran away, which I, I did periodically because I was just like, I can't, I've got to leave, I've got to leave. He would ring around any of our friends and family for, first and foremost to find out where I was. Um, he'd ring my phone and ring and ring and ring and ring till the mailbox was full, couldn't leave any messages. All the messages were vile, abusive rants. Um, I mean, he used to call me upwards of 50 times a day. Um, I've gone to work, found him waiting in the car park for me at work, mm. harassing the receptionist. He's rung, I've gotten to work at half eight in the morning. The receptionist is in tears. He's rung me 20 times already, getting called in by my boss. Um, like, you've got to get, like, this needs to stop or you're going to lose your job. Um, visiting friends and coming out and some guys taking photographs of me in my car. I then find out later he's had a private detective to follow me around and take photographs and report back to him. Um, he has showed me um, uh, criminal records of people that I've been hanging around with or used to hang around with. And I'm just like, Is, isn't that illegal? <laughs> right? The dude was, was crazy. Um, so I... Do you think he had access to the police then to get those records? For sure. For sure. Um, I mean, he... After, after once the violence had escalated and I was like absolutely not going back. I mean, I was, what, three months pregnant? Two, three months pregnant. So it was still quite early. <laughs> And so what he agreed was that he said he didn't want me to be far because he wanted to make sure that if anything happened with the baby, he could be around, blah, blah, blah. Again, it seems so plausible. So he paid for a deposit for a flat around the corner from his house. And I was like, well, at least I've got some space. And he took some pots and pans and bedding and this, that and the other and kind of got, got set up in my own flat. It wasn't the <laughs> dream escape <laughs> that I had hoped it would be. So like, I'd come back from work, put the lights on, and literally as soon as my light switched on, my phone would start ringing. Because actually, his like back of his house, through the windows, you could actually see my flat. Um, and so he'd come round, he'd be knocking on the doors and the windows late at night, trying to get me to let him in. Um, came home from work another time he'd taken all of the electrical items out of my house so he'd taken the tv and the kettle and like it's just like for god's sake another time he'd taken like all the cups plates pots and pans so I couldn't cook any food and all of these things were to force me to go back like oh well you can't live there without this stuff you're gonna have to come back to me um Came home another night, and in fact, another morning actually, because I'd stayed over at a friend's house because it's just like this, it's crazy. Um, I found him naked, asleep in my bed. He'd broken in <laughs> and was asleep in my bed. I went mad. I'd I, I, like, I dragged him out of that bed and threw him out of the house, starkers with his clothes. Poor people on the bus got like an eyeful. I was just like, this, this is crazy. Um, we had a holiday booked that had been booked before we split up. I think I was about four months pregnant by this point. Um, <clears throat> and 
we'd kind of talked about it. Should we still go? Everyone's like, well, it's, it's all paid for and everything. It's probably going to be the last time I'm going to get to go abroad before baby arrives. And he, uh, he really, we decided that we'd go on this holiday. It was one of the worst mistakes of my life. Mm. It's... I don't know if you've ever been trapped with someone who you know is harmful. That's what it was like in a sunny European country. <laughs> and like we both, we both came home with scars because the fighting was so bad. Um, How did it start? Don't even remember. I don't even remember. And because most of the arguments started over just his random paranoia, it's not over anything I'd actually done. Bit like being at home. <laughs> so I honestly don't know what started it. Um, but I do know, like, I think he needed stitches in his ass because <laughs> I'd broken some glass and just, yeah, I, I stabbed him with a broken piece of glass because he was just like mauling me, screaming at me in my face, blah, blah, blah. And you're still pregnant at this point? I was, story, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. still much pregnant. Um, he, um, woke me up stubbing cigarettes out on my face. <laughs> um, like it, it, it was horrific. Um, I remember coming back home and just being so relieved when the plane landed. Um, it's like, oh, in fact, this was before we'd left, actually. I oh, should go in, go in the duty-free. It's like, oh, which perfume would you like? Assuming he's going to buy me some perfume or something like that. So I picked one. Oh, my girlfriend's going to love that. I was like, sorry. I mean, literally, when like we'd got back home from this holiday, obviously, it like became apparent he could see my flat from from his house. But the same works the other way. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was a Saturday morning or something, and I kind of opened my curtains, and there's a naked chick standing on the windowsill in his in his room, just purposely just stood there in like a big X. And I was like, are you? <laughs> anyway, let's just say like, you mean abused woman who's also pregnant and hormonal? Not a good plan. So I kind of marched around there. He opened the door and I just <laughs> legged it in and started wellying on this, on this girl. Like, I was like, who does that? And it was purposely directed. It triggered you on purpose. Oh God, yeah. Um, so he apparently ditched the girl then was trying to get back to, and I was just like, it was so, so much. Um, I ended up, um, he, he couldn't, he was obsessed. Um, and the, the final straw was, um, him shattering the windows in my flat. So I, I turned off the lights, disconnected the phone. Um, locked all the doors and windows, closed all the curtains, turned my mobile phone off because he would just constantly ring, not ring, if I turn the light on to go to the toilet on the phone. And so I basically was just living in the dark with all of my means of communication disconnected. Sometimes I'd let it, let it ring and pick it up and just leave it. But then I can hear him 
shouting abuse and carrying on crazy. But then if I, if I hang it back up again, it just ring, rings again. It's just like, it's like some kind of nightmare torture. Um, and so I was kind of like hiding in my house in the dark, everything switched off, all the phones unplugged, hiding in my bed and he smashed, because I wouldn't open the door to him or respond to him, smashed the windows and I was just showered in broken glass. Um, and it wasn't, I think one of the neighbours had called the police by this point because there'd been so many incidents already that were on record and what have you. And they were like, the police were straight away. I mean, it was good what they did. Um, and because we were living separately and it, it's easily identified that actually he was the perpetrator and not me, um, and I was pregnant as well, um, they basically just said, pack, pack a bag. Um, it's not safe for you to stay here. And I got bundled into a, um, a hostel. Um, How old are you at this point? Um, 24. Yeah, 24. Um, and I spent the rest of my pregnancy homeless, <laughs> which was still better than being with crazy. And I'd love to say that that was the end of it. Not even close. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I spent most of my pregnancy homeless. So I'm still trying to still trying to hold down a job. <laughs> um, the hostel, I mean, the, host, the first hostel that I went to was like a prison. There's literally razor wire on the 10-foot walls, video doorbell to get in so that, you mean, people who shouldn't be there can't get in. Um there were families there who were living in like two and three rooms on the same floor and it was the most loneliest, depressing place I've ever been to. Um, my parents didn't know I was there, my sister didn't know I was there because of course I've not seen these people for months because he's made, like nobody at work knew what was happening and it was, uh, it was so hard. What they don't tell you is it's only temporary. So like, I think after about five days, they're like, I'm sorry, you can't stay here anymore. Um, and so you either get moved to another hostel or you're just gonna have to make do until we get back in touch with you again and tell you there's a space somewhere. So I was kind of sleeping in my car, <sighs> sleeping in hostels, um, crashing at my sister's for a couple of nights. I mean, she got her own family and that. Um, staying with like the odd friend that I'd managed to reconnect with. And it was like that until I was eight months. Good grief. Um, and that entire time still having, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd managed to avoid him for a lot of that period until I, oh, I didn't I say I got sick. I one of the hostels that I was at it was actually really lovely near a big park and so I'd big belly pregnant by this point and just went out for a walk and I remember like my, my hips were killing me my mm. back was killing me and I was just kind of you know, you're seeing the pregnant model haven't you just kind of doing the pregnant model <sighs> and my legs just gave way and so I kind of collapsed in the road and I remember lying there 
not really been able to get up. And there was a police car on the other side of the road. But it had pulled over like a little red fiesta and was just harassing the, the occupants of this car. Nobody seemed to notice that was on the floor at all. Somebody actually came out of their house because they saw me lying on the ground and called an ambulance and whatever. Um, and that was how he found me. So the ambulance called my next of kin. So I came round to find him there in the chair next to me at the hospital, laughing and joking with the nurses and everything. Like, I don't have any words to <laughs> to describe that. Um, I mean, I was on a lot of like medication as well. So I, I think I lost about three days. Um, my, I think it's quite a common condition to be honest with you, but my hips are dislocated mm. um and so they got me on loads of pain medication and whatnot and so i kind of I was in and out for about three days um and then of course it was getting quite close to when the baby was going to be born um and he kind of came like oh look i want to like i want to make sure i'm there for the kid and you know it makes loads of promises and and all the rest of it like i do want to help you and blah 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 and when you're in that position, it's, I mean, one, I wasn't in any fit state to even be having that conversation. Um, also, I also didn't ha really have any other support. So it's kind of like if someone's offering you support, even if it's the devil offering you support, you're like, when, you're, when your options are limited, you're just kind of like, fine. And it's like, I was, I was already, I was at the bottom. Like, there's no place to go but up. So it's just like, whatever happened, I can get a talk so I eventually got rehoused um it was I think I was there for four weeks before baby was born but when I say the place was empty it was empty there was no curtains there was no cooker there was no furniture of any kind there was not there wasn't even any flooring it was just concrete floor so um my, I think the hospital had notified my parents and that as well. So my one of my mum's friend, friends gave me two like sofa chairs. So in the day, I'd, there'd be a chair at night. I'd push them together so they're facing each other. So I had a kind of bed. Mm. Sister gave me like a little portable telly. And I think I got a sheet, a sheet mm. for the front window. And um, I had to decorate it all and get carpets and, and all that kind of stuff in ready for when baby arrived. Um yeah, it was such a hard time. And I mean, I thought it was easy to get rid of people. Mm. Like, you know, when normal people break up, there may be a little bit of a, you mean, um, time where you separate from each other. But it, you mean, it's generally quite quick and not that traumatic. But this, this was a whole other thing. And so by the time um, my son was born, um, it was, again, hospital called in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he arrived drunk. Um, thankfully, the midwives were like, we're not going to let him hold the baby because he, he was very, very drunk, chatting up there midwives and the nurses and what have you and I had really hoped that 
okay, maybe he can get with the idea that we're not together, but we've got a kid together. And for a split second, <laughs> I thought that would be the case. And he did that thing where he went and bought loads of furniture and loads of baby stuff and clothes and all stuff and it like furnished the house out, blah, blah, blah. And after six months of me having all of that, I packed it all up in the car, took it to his house and gave it back because it all came with strings. So he obviously wanted to be in the baby's life, but he just thought that that meant that he could live in my house. Mm. So he'd be coming around every day. Like, who you, like who's been coming around? Who's been here? Oh, who's on? <sighs> Oh, it, horrendous. So I'm trying to the point where I was just then stopped. I wasn't going home because I was like, I actually can't escape from him there. Um, once my son was born, just as, like for my escape. So I started using crack again, mm. um, even after I, I'd stopped. But I was just, you know, just like, I don't know. I, I don't know what else to do to escape from this self-medication, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was kind of like I was using again. Um, I didn't know at the time, but um, found out later. I was also suffering with postnatal depression, um, PTSD. I imagine as well. Yeah, PTSD. All of those, all of those things, um, and he, he was just obsessed, and I couldn't. Um, I couldn't get him to stop. It didn't matter what I said, what I did. Um, in fact, I've got um, I've got a scar on my arm, which um, I made myself, but it was I wasn't trying to do away with myself or anything like that. He was obsessed with the idea that I was a prostitute. Absolutely obsessed. So e that conversation you had with, yeah. Even, you mean, with a newborn in my arms, <laughs> knowing full well that I've just been through, you mean, natural childbirth and I'm just trying to look after my baby, still in my house, in my face, about this, you mean, mysterious life as a, as a sex worker or whatever. And I literally took a knife and just, I was like, ah, I don't oh, know what God. else I can do to make you believe me. Like, will you believe me if I, you mean, if I cut myself, cut my arm off to like tell you how, you mean, to, what do I need to do? And that's how I ended up with that scar. Um, which I, I didn't really tell people, um, but that I'd gotten to that level of desperation. It's like, what do you do when somebody won't believe you when you're telling the truth? And that, and again, that, kind of fed into that whole incident as a child. Um, and it's also fed my desire for justice and the truth. So you won't hear a lie past my, my lips. I said, I have spent most of my adult life being called a liar, being told I'm a liar, being told it's not true, you know, like all that stuff. And so it's something that... Uh, it, it it motivates me. It, it motivates me. The truth motivates me. So it's one of the reasons why I'm actually really happy that 
we kind of met. Although we didn't really meet, did we? My parents. <laughs> but yeah, yes, I met your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was. So she, your mum was raving about you, by the way. Oh, <laughs> it was you, cool. Mom. It was cool. Thanks, yeah. Um, but that's kind of what we, me and your mum, connected on was just this notion about telling your own truth. And of course, her, uh, she's your mum's an author as well, and that's kind of what she's written about mm-hmm. is is her truth and her story. So we did really connect on that, um, and having the opportunity to share these things to a wider audience, one is quite healing for me. Good. Um, but also, you know, when you've been stifled and muzzled your entire life, um, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing this is what Johnny Depp's doing. <laughs> 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 Just like you, you want the truth out there, don't you? You, you? you want the truth out there. And if it helps or assists one person to avoid some of the pitfalls and traumas that I ended up in, totally worth it i can imagine the pressure building to get that truth out Mm. so after this then Mm -hmm. were you hospitalized um no no i not hospitalized at all i probably spent the next how many years let me think so i'd say probably the next three years stuck in a crazy crazy (laughs) world some of my own making but not all of my own making did you have any more kids with him no no but your kid must have been picking up on the energy so from my son being about six months old was the first time my ex reported me to, who did he report me to? I'm pretty sure it was social services. Report me to social services for like child neglect. Um, he basically told them that I was a prostitute and I'd been, you'd been having sex in front of my little son. Uh, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I'm, again, I'm laughing, this is not funny. So I then had, you know, mean, social workers at my house. Then they wanted to go and speak to the nursery where my son went. Now, bearing in mind, the only reason he was at nursery was because I was working, because I had a proper job, um, working in education, um, which meant that's how I was paying for, for nurseries. I'm just... Then the social workers wanted to speak to my, my employer. So that, that was fun. Um, was he trying to get the kid from you? Yeah. So obviously that they investigated, the, they found nothing wrong. It was closed. But he did this on repeat for the next three years. Oh, God. Um, and it would alternate between reporting me to social services or f- calling the police. So at one point... I probably had the police at my house every other week because it had a report of a child who's either in danger, is neglected, hasn't been fed, mum's doing drugs, mum's a prostitute, blah, blah, blah. And every other week they'd come to my house, 
They're checking in the cupboards, inspecting my, my son, wandering around the house, checking where he slept, wanting to know if I worked, how did I get my money. But do you think he was paying them off to do that? Because it's a waste of place resources, isn't it? They would get sick no, of that at well, some Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think at least some of it was genuine. The police had to come around and check. So, Because I said to them, I was like, you, you know me at this point. And they, it was getting to the point where they were knocking on the door and apologising. Like, we're really sorry we've got to do this again. But I think the rules, or I don't know whether it's law or the rules that they have to follow are that if there's a, any report that involves a child, they have to go around. So he knew how to play the system. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was frequent over a period of about three years. Um, in between, um, private investigators, I mean, trying to get information about me at work, following me around, taking photographs, like blatantly taking photographs of me and just like horrendous. Um, I think at six, when my son was six months old, it was the first, first time he took me to court. Um, I think he took me to court. I'm sure it was along the same lines. Unfit mother, neglecting the child. The child should live with me. Um, she's a prostitute, blah, 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 blah. Um, all that, I mean, thankfully, the judge on that case was like, there's no evidence of any of the other stuff. And all they would do was a contact order. And the contact order meant that our son was with me Monday to Friday and with his dad every weekend, which was fine initially. I mean, it certainly gave I me mean, single mum a break <laughs> <laughs> at the weekend too. So <laughs> that was good. Um, the problem came when I, um, so I was in uh, university, so I was kind of continuing my studies um, started university and oh no hang on hang on that's not true I wasn't at university I think I was on a course so it was pre-university but I was I was on a course anyway um, I was working a different job and I was like I, I actually can't if our son is with his dad every weekend I actually don't get any time with him I said if I'm working and studying all week and then he's with his dad all, all weekend. When do I actually get to spend time with my child? So I was like, I actually want to get the court order um, amended. And he fought me tooth and nail. Like, it was horrible. And again, we've got the same old, same old accusations coming up in court. And I mean, claiming he's got evidence of this, that and the other. And presenting the photos from the... PI and whole thing, whole thing. Um, anyway, so the, the contact agreement gets changed. Um, I think our son would have been just turned two mm -hmm. or not long. And I'd, I ended up having a fire in, in the kitchen. So it, wasn't, it wasn't a bad fire. I'd been frying something or other. I left, left the fryer on called the fire brigade to come round. 
<laughs> this is how crappy the house was. The kitchen was so tiny that by the time the fire brigade arrived, the fire had burnt itself out because there was no oxygen in the room. <laughs> but it was like smoke damaged and there was kind of like black sort everywhere. So I'm like, okay, so I've now got like a two-year-old. I can't cook. Um, it was like a housing association property. So they were like, you know, you need your, um, we need to get insurance to cover it and get people down to repair and all that kind of thing. So that was obviously going to take a few weeks. And so we'd since we had the new contact arrangement, things seemed like they'd been, actually things had been okay for about, a, I mean, not quite a year, but they've been okay for a good few months now. They, we've kind of maybe built up some trust and can just like move forwards like normal people. <laughs> More fool me. <laughs> um, so I kind of rang him up. I was like, look, um, would you be able to, to keep our son for a couple of weeks? Um, I said, like, I've had, a house, I've had a fire in the kitchen. So the house is fine. So we're, we're both fine. I said, but I, I can't cook. And I can't, like, there's no way to do any hot food. I said, I can't have a toddler and not be able to, to cook hot food. So would it be okay that until we've got the housing association come and tidy up and replace what they need? Yeah, absolutely fine. Um, agreed what dates um, I'd go and collect our son, which was about, I think it was like two, just under, just like 11 days or something like that. Um, so the date rolls around and I thought a couple of days before I'd rung, didn't get, get anywhere. So I just left a voicemail. Didn't think anything of it. Didn't get a reply. I was like, so the day arrives and I'm kind of rung a couple of more times and sent text messages like, what time should I expect you? Blah, 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 blah. No answer. So I'm starting to get a bit, mm, what's going on now? So... Then I start ringing around his family, just be like, it's like, you know, where he is, can't seem to get a hold of him, blah, blah, blah. Nobody would speak to me. Wouldn't answer the phone. If they did answer the phone, just like, eh, not talking to you, phone down. So I'm starting to get alarmed now. Um, I've contacted my parents, said like, I need someone to like come down with me to his house. And I mean, go and get my son. So I've got a lift down there. Can't get any answer. No lights on. Nobody there. I'm in full on panic. In fact, the whole family are in full on panic mode. It is horrible. Um, and you know, you just kind of like deciding what what to do. I'm just like, look, sleep on it at night. And we, we know he's not gonna harm the baby or anything like that that's just like see what tomorrow brings we've left messages pushed a note in the door speaking to the neighbors blah 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 and so another day's rolled by exactly the same thing not sight nor sound so um it's now christmas eve and so on christmas eve i had to ring the police to report my two-year-old missing oh my God. um i I don't have the words. I do have the words because I wrote it in my book. <laughs> but um, I I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, I had to report him missing. It's really funny how you mentioned before, do I think, um, like, he had some sort of, like, influence with, with the police? And I would say yes. So I've got some very good examples of this. So I called the police and my, my family knew what, what was going on and we're all being very kind of supportive and just as worried and, and anxious as I was. So two officers came to my house. I'd explained about the fire in the kitchen and that I wasn't able to cook. And so we'd, we'd arranged that he'd stayed with his dad for a couple of weeks, um, but he was meant to be home like two days ago. Can't get hold of him. Family won't, won't speak to me, blah, blah, blah. So their first thing was, well, well we, we, can't, we, we can't report him missing. I'm like, well, why not? Well, is he with his birth dad? I'm like, yeah. And it's like, he's not missing then, is he? He's with his dad. Mm. <laughs> and, I just, and I was like, ah. So eventually, so it was only when I brought down the court paperwork to say, um, look, this is the contact arrangement, is with me in, um, in the week, and then is with his... Um, dad so they eventually agreed that I could report him missing um, presumably it was a weekday and they were like oh well no he, he should be with you kind of thing um, it was the most surreal thing because I had obviously Christmas tree up all his presents wrapped under the tree like all his stuffs at home and I could not stay there. I, I just couldn't. So I ended up going to my parents. Um, Christmas Day was a... I actually don't actually remember Christmas Day. Not sure any of us remember Christmas Day. Um, sure, we had like we opened presents and things, but it was just one of the most stressful, traumatic, difficult things to go through. Um, on Boxing Day, so I've con I think I'd contacted the police intermittently over that period. Um, Boxing Day, I've like, rung them again, have you got any news, what's happening, blah, blah, blah. And I think I must have rung three times that day. And eventually they were like, oh, someone's going to come out and see, see you today, where are you going to be? I was like, I'll be at my parents' house. <laughs> so we all waited and waited waited and waited somebody eventually arrived at midnight and this copper i kid you not was about seven foot tall huge huge dude in all his vest and pockets and all that kind of stuff so i've answered the door um and i'm like kind of ushering him to the living room where my parents are i think well, they had one of their friends there as well Um, but the copper refuses to come in. He's like, oh, no, I just need to speak with you, on your, with you on your own. And I was like, no, like, my family are here to support me. Like, we all need to know, like, what, what's going on? And he absolutely refused. And so it's one of the few times, actually, I saw my mum actually defended me. So she just kind of jumps up and she was like, you mean this is our grandson? This is her, this is her son, like we're all involved you need to speak to all of us or get out so eventually you're kind of fine and um it still wouldn't come into the room it's kind of stood in the doorway and told us this story which goes like 
Oh, we've managed to locate um, your ex and your son. Um, he's told us that because of your history of violence uh, against him, that um, he doesn't want us to um, disclose where he is right now because he's afraid that you mean you're going to bring some sort of harm on him. So we're all starting to boil by this point. Um, um, your uh, son is safe and well, although we have noted that when you dropped him off with his dad, that he was um, like unkempt, he was dirty, he'd got lice, um, like clearly been neglect, clearly been neglected. Um, uh, we've also spoken to, we've also like um, spoken to social services and there's already been a meeting and social services, <coughs> sorry, Um, with the police support, have made the decision that your son is better off staying with his father. Oh, um, there's nothing more that we can do. This is a civil matter. If you want to take it to court, you can. Um, can I get a glass of water? Yeah, yeah. Let me go, let me go and grab that file. I'm going to check with Jim as well because I think so we're supposed to... to finish at three. How far in are we? Maybe a quarter. Oh my, you're kidding me. No. You're kidding me? No. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's fine, we, we, can we can schedule a part two. <clears throat> All right, we've been on an harrowing journey with Donna today. And if you want to check this book out, Donna Ward, Forged by Fire, all the links will be in the description box below this video. This is just part one of Pure Evil Stepdad. You may be thinking, what's what's going on with the stepdad at this point? But he is going to come back with a vengeance into this story. There's only about a quarter to a third of the story been told within this three hours. So thank you for sticking with us. You might be wondering what happens with the kid. We're going to get to that in the next part and a lot more. So please let us know in the description box what you thought about this video. And as I said, you know how brave Donna is coming in and just telling us all of the details of what she has been through. Um, we absolutely salute you. And uh, yeah, huge thank you for coming in. Is there anything you'd like to say to the viewers in conclusion? Um, yeah, the one thing I would like to leave with uh, viewers is don't stay silent. I stayed silent for so long because I believed that nobody would ever believe me which was kind of my experience but I now know that that isn't true so if you think that you are have, have been or are currently in any of the situations that I've kind of touched on today tell somebody um whether it's a co-worker family member a neighbor <laughs> um talk to somebody you can walk into any police station um, a lot of charities will also allow you to use telephones or their resources to get in touch with somebody or can signpost you. Um, I think the world is a much kinder, more knowledgeable place now than it was for me um, many years ago. Um, and there is help and support out there. 
And if you're listening to this on audio only, then the website is www.donnaward, D-O-N-N-A-Ward, W-A-R-D, dot books.co.uk. It's dash books. Dash books.co.uk. <laughs> yeah. And you've got Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and everything on this card, right? So we'll put all those links below Brilliant. the video. Yeah. If you search um, purpose and pain, um, you'll find me on social media. And this book is the first of the trilogy. We've only covered content in the first of the trilogy today. So it looks like we've got at least another two more parts. So, yeah, like I said, please let us know in the description box what you thought of this video. And if you want to reach out to Donna, all of the links will be down there as well. All right, cheers. Well. Thank you. Yeah, well done. Brilliant. Yep. Thank you. It's